Welcome to the show. Our special guest for this particular episode is Bill Blair Jr. And I have to tell you that this is a great honor for me to be able to interview Bill because uh, Bill's father is a racing legend um, and Bill also in his own right a racing legend and a lot of early nascar to talk about this is the kind of stuff that i just love hearing about the stories of 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 nascar from the beginning and um all of that so uh bill thank you for coming on and it is great to have you here if if you would i want to start with just your thoughts on what we just saw over the weekend at north wilkesboro speedway with the return of nascar after so many years and so many people thinking, including myself, that this will never happen, NASCAR's back at North Wilkesboro. I know you were there. What were your thoughts and, and um, you know, how did you get received and, and, and the fans kind of take to the older cars that you have? Well, one word, epic, epic. Uh, those guys did such a great job up there bringing it back. And I got to thank Terry Parsons and Ronald Queen. They worked so hard in bringing this back in the whole community of Wilkesboro and North Wilkesboro. You know, they just, they missed it. The fans loved that track always. It was a different kind of racetrack up and down hill. It's just, it was a great weekend and I loved it. The tears come to my eyes thinking about the first race there in 1947. I went up with my dad. I don't remember much about it. I know he finished second in one of the heat races, and Buddy Schumann won it. But there's not much left in history about the, you know, they didn't print a lot of stuff back yeah. then to keep records. But uh, I had some pictures of the guy that won it, Bonnie Flock, and I gave them to Ronald Queen and Terry Parsons. I noticed they got them in the office now. It was an Easter egg car, we called it. It's 39 Fold Coupe. And the Buckshot Mars used to work for uh, Red Vault. He went out on his own, started a company called Modern Automotive, and he built that car. Okay. It was Lavender and Cream, number one, and finally won that race with it. That's crazy. Okay, so um, let's let's talk a little bit about, uh, I think the car, if, if, if I read the notes correctly that you sent to me, you actually have two cars. One is a 1939 Ford Moonshine car, which you, um, I believe, that you brought up there um, for some sort of pre-race show that, that centered around, obviously, the beginnings of NASCAR, which have a lot to do with moonshine, right? And then you have yeah. a 40, uh, 1940 Ford modified coupe um, yes. that you brought as well. So talk about those cars and the history of those cars. Well, I've got three of them, actually. I've got a 40 Ford modified coupe that I raced for years, and I think we won, I don't know, I think I got 50, 60 trophies. It's got a lot of first-place finishes. And I think it won 70-some races, but I'm not sure. I would lost count of them. But, uh, oh, wow. And then it was a very, very fast little Ford modified. And some of them said the first, uh, well, I don't know. I did. It, I, we'd done it in honor of my dad. He had a car just like it. And so it's pain just like my dad had. And, of course, uh, we raced all over the southeast here in the Carolinas and uh, Virginia. Did very well with it. And the liquor car is a 39 Ford Coupe with a, great motor in it that will really go and all the um, the cross uh, uh, reinforcements there behind the seats all removed to get more liquor in there 
It's got disc brakes on the front, straight ice still under the rear with nine inch port axle, and it's ready to haul. <laughs> and then I've uh, got another brown Ford, it's all original, and it was a hauler also. The guy that looked it over said it was because all the braces, everything's gone out from behind the seat. It's got all the characteristics of a hauler. And I've got a McCulloch supercharger to go on it. They're very rare, but that's what they used to put on. So I have two liquor cars and still a race car, plus still got the 53 Olds tribute car to my dad, uh, the car that he run Daytona Beach with in 1953 and won the race. Wow. But you ask about the fans. The fans were just so happy. And uh, the liquor car, we put it in front of the stage, and Matt Dillon uh, did a uh, his song, The uh, Carolina Moon, Carolina Moonshine, you yep. know. And uh, then we had a, a, a old police car, I believe it was about a 53 or 4 model Ford with a guy from uh, Mount Airy driving it. He's uh, called him Barney. looks just like Barney in the uh, Andy Griffin show. And it was packed. I mean, the whole big field, I, I, several thousand people in that field. And they're always crowded around that car wanting pictures. And in fact, it started raining a little bit. And when, when we moved it, there was still a crowd of people around wanting to make pictures. Wow. They loved it. They hollered. They screamed and asked questions. We had the Jeff Hammond and Rusty Wallace. Jeff was uh, asking the moonshiners questions, and Rusty was talking to the revenuers. So he had a, they had a deal going back and forth between the revenuers and the moonshiners. <laughs> Quite interesting. And they loved it. it. Tell you what, I've been to a lot of things, but Wilkesburg was one of the greatest little deals I've ever been to. I said a little deal. It was a big deal. I mean, they, I just couldn't believe what they'd done up there. I mean, I don't, I can sit here 30 minutes, still couldn't describe all I saw up there, but people just loved it. And what they did to that track, Tom, the way it used to be and the way they have fixed it now, they lost none of the character. Yeah. They, they, kept, they kept the colors and everything. They were faded. Uh, the roof off of some of the old places they had to tear down because of the rotten wood and all. Right. They used it in other areas to reminisce, you know. They have acquired a lot of pictures of the early days, and they're in a room dedicated to that so people can come in and view them. It's just, and and people are so nice. They had people going around with, with uh, they're picking up pipe. If you drop something, they picked it up. They kept it spotless. That's and great. The fields, the fields were groomed for parking. Everything was carried out just the way it should be. Everybody was well trained to handle everything. I can't, I just can't say enough about that. I wish all racetracks were like that. If they were, no telling how big crowds they would have. But I know Terry Parsons and Ronald Queen and others up there, Brian Call, Call's family distilleries, they were there in force. And they're so nice. And, and how the, they had the Clay Calls, two, one of the, let's see, had the uh, Chrysler and I believe uh, Ford up there that they used to use to haul liquor, Clay Call did. And they've restored those cars and they, wow. they had them on display. But it is. It's just a great event. I've never been to anything like that. Well, it was, um, I mean, it it really is almost a miracle because, you know, we you, so many of us kept saying over the years, well, it'll never happen because the track was so far gone and, and the facility needed so much work. You just never thought that you'd, but, um, you know, it, it, it did happen and it just was just watching it on TV and seeing everything was, was incredible. I can only imagine what it was like to be back there in person. And it, and you, you mentioned, um, the, the video 
Matt Dillon's video, Carolina Moonshine, was filmed there. And, of course, um, they when they reopened the track to do Red Dirt Rising, um, the premiere of that, you were you were talking about how you, you won that race. Um, I mean, it had to be just beyond, almost beyond thought for you to, to now, with all your history there, to see this place come back to life and know that there is likely a really bright future ahead now for a facility that we all thought, I, I think we all thought was probably just lost forever. I know it. And you know how those that we were and everybody else, Sid and I worked, we went to Wilkesburg the last seven days, I think four times or five times. Wow. But we went up Friday, went up uh, Saturday, went up Sunday. And then I think it was twice during a week prior but uh, we had we loaded up, got the car ready, went up there uh, Saturday. Then we came home, unloaded, loaded another car up, and had to make it fit the trailer. Unload that morning at seven fifteen, and then last night we were so tired, uh, we got it loaded up finally. And I was coming down the road, and I see a double, and couldn't judge distance, so I had to pull over and let her drive. Oh wow! <laughs> she's a good driver. So when I got home, she doesn't back trailer, so I just going back it in the shop. It took me about six, eight, ten tries. I don't know how many it was. <laughs> but I was just flat worn out, and she was too. But I'm going to tell you something. We enjoyed every minute of it. I think our emotions overcome how tired we really were. And we were making dumb mistakes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> but, uh, but we were just, and, and just so happy uh, to see and be involved in what they have done at Wilkesboro. That's why I call it epic. And like you said a while ago, we knew how it was and how much work was going to be involved in the short space of time that they did it in. And I look for them to do a lot more up there, too. I, I feel sure they'll resurface that track one day because it, it needs it. But uh, the history of that track, the way it was, the surface and everything, the drivers really like it because you got to drive that track. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, I couldn't have done anything. I couldn't have dreamed up a dream to do it any better than they did it. It's just marvelous, and I'm just tickled to have been a part of it with the history that I have with the family going up there, you know, with my dad, the first race. I was there the first race. And here in the South, he introduced a quick change rear end. That's the first time NASCAR had ever seen a quick change rear end. He brought it from the north, from the Amler Brothers up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Another thing that he did right there at Wilkesburg, he brought the very, very first uh, dry sump system there. Oh, wow. He got it from Grand, Andy Granatelli, Grandcourt Brothers, who... Uh, had the uh, shop up there, and you know they, their history in, in the Annapolis 500 races. My daddy bought an engine from them, flathead Ford engine, in 47, I believe it was, that came out of one of their Indy cars, and it had dry sump on it that they had engineered, and he bought it from them, gave him $1,000 for it, and that was a lot of money back then. I bet, yeah. But nobody had never seen a dry sump system. When he got out of his car um, that day, it led the, the race, and uh, but he still didn't win it. Some wires come loose under the dash, and they had fuel pumps on it, you know, and they quit running. So it, he had a chance to win, but it didn't happen. That's racing. But just the things that's happened there, um, and finally will go down, you know, and and uh, being the first one at that great event at North Wilkesburg, it, it equals to me. It surpasses Darlington. I mean, I shouldn't say that because I know I love Darlington too. I was there at the first race, and uh, you know, I saw a lot of history being made. Those people, the drivers, and the, and the owners of the cars and the promoters had no idea what was fixing to happen when they started back in the late 40s. But really, 
it started way before that, but uh, racing, when the boys come back from the war, you know, they were invincible. They survived the war, and boy, did racing take off. It, I've heard it said by a, a few different people that um, the sort of post-war boom for motorsports did really relate to the drivers kind of wanting an outlet because you know when obviously when you're when you're in war and you're in you're in especially if you're in you know combat situations that the adrenaline the energy level i've heard it said that that for a lot of those guys racing kind of became their their outlet for that adrenaline now you know now that they're back from the war um and you might be able to shed some light on that but but i i would love to just hear hear what it was like in the 40s and the 50s and in the 60s you know at places like north wilkesboro because i know that you experienced all that through your dad and then of course um you know later on racing your own cars and we'll get to your driving career in a moment but w- what were those days like for you what is your first memory of being at a well, racetrack how old were you well, believe it or not, my first memory is 1940. I was three years old. They oh, built wow. a racetrack across the street from a big, big dairy farm. We had 800 acres of a dairy farm. And uh, they happened to build a racetrack across the road from us. And, and some guys from uh, uh, Mar- Moxville, I believe it was, uh, Yakinville up that way, uh, Brothers, they, uh, they built, uh, who was it, Sheila? Beatty Brothers. Uh, that's my wife, I just asked. Yeah. But um, they had been to Indianapolis. They come back in one place to build a mini uh, Indianapolis Speedway. And uh, the government had this land over there across the street from us, and so it was dirt road. So they bought it. It was for sale, 137 acres. So they built a one-mile Indianapolis-style track. And that was the first race I ever went to in 1940. And uh, all the drivers all over the country were there. And my daddy, later on, after the war, this was in 1940, but he went to Baltimore to build battleships. Oh, wow. He come home, he had to build him a racetrack. And, and I'll tell you this about the racetracks back then. And these, how ambitious, uh, ambitious these guys were. They were rambunctious, you know. They were looking for something to do. Now, my daddy didn't need to do this, but for excitement, guess what he did? He went and got him some cars, and he started hauling white liquor. Oh. And just for the excitement. He had a chase car that had come through Martinville speeding to attract the law. And then he'd come through five, ten minutes later, and it'd be free and clear on the highway, you know. He'd be chasing that chase car. Yeah, there you go. A lot of tales about wrecking the chase car and having parties at the beach and come in next morning, the car would be gone. The ocean took it out, you know, and stuff like <laughs> that. He, he's a wild man. But he did it for excitement, as others did, and they all were friends, you know. I mean, he knew a lot of people in Wilkesboro. He met Junior Johnson early on and all those people up there. He knew Clay Cole. He knew Miller Ashley. And uh, just he knew all these people. Ended up in Marksville. He knew Clay Earl. See, Clay Earl was an early moonshiner, too. And uh, he knew Sam Rice. See, Sam Rice and Clay Earls and I believe it was Henry Lawrence built that uh, Marksville Speedway. Yes. In 47. And... Uh, Sam lost his part in a poker game to Clay Earls and Bill France. <laughs> and uh, he, he's met Bill France from then on. But Sam spent uh, two uh, terms in the penitentiary for 
I guess it was taxes. They got in for white liquor, you know, two different times. They went to Chillicothe and one time to Atlanta. And uh, But seeing Willsboro, Martinsville, that uh, new Charlotte Speedway, they called it in 1948, I believe, they opened that track and they had the first strictly stock race out June the 19th, 1949. Wow. They built that track. Two brothers from uh, Carnesville built that track. Then they went, they got caught, I guess it was, and they lost it, their lease on that land. So the landowner, he 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 started him a racetrack, and that's where that and Bill France thinks you know, but France knew all these guys too. See, he used to race himself, and that's how he yes. met a lot of people. That's how he met my daddy. So my daddy went in '47 down Daytona Beach, and he met Bill France at High Point Speedway in 1940. And that's yeah, they become friends. He met all the flock boys. They was up here. Tim wasn't, but Bob and Fonny was up here at the High Point Speedway in 1940. In fact, uh, my daddy had two thirty-nine Fords, and he let Bob Flock drive one of them. And uh, my daddy tore his up, and Bob tore the other one up. So he beat the fenders out on it and went to Langhorn, Pennsylvania, and a couple of weeks later, and Lois C. won the race. My daddy finished right behind him, driving oh, wow. old beat up Ford. Those Yankees said uh, when Bill pulled in, with that, he was towing it with a forty-one Ford. He pulled in, you know, up there, and they laughed. They said, you ordered up that piece of junk in the junkyard. And this guy with them named Monk Payne said, y'all won't be laughing after the race is over. They said, you want to put some money on that? And he said, how much you got? <laughs> well, it wasn't a big bet, but anyway, they made a bet. And so after the race, when he finished second, they showed up over and paid him. But, uh, you know, you think about this, Tom. How many people are left living that remembered now, I don't remember this specifically, but I got to see Lord C. Drive. Yeah. But I didn't know who he was. I was three years old. And uh, I can remember a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But at three years old, I consumed it. And then uh, in 1946 and 7, when it got going again, I failed to third grade because of racing. All I could talk about was racing. <laughs> I failed Sounds to third like grade. <laughs> yeah. And the first mother said the first two words I put together was race car. I knew what they were. <laughs> and see, we lived, the 29 and 70, we had another farm uptown. We called it uptown. It was still outside of the city then. But the Highway 29 come right through us. And so that was the way you went north-south. If you wanted to go up to Washington from Atlanta, Georgia, you had to go through the high point or go up US-1, okay. which is out of the way. So I got to meet, think about this, Bonnie Flock, Bob Flock all stayed with us, Bill France stayed with us. Wow. Uh, Joe Wolf, the, the, the other guy from Hollywood, had a Hollywood speed shot from Reading, Pennsylvania, that Bonnie drove his car and won the championship, I guess it was 48, but uh, the modified champion. But, I mean, I got to meet all these people. They were my heroes. And on top of that, Tom, my daddy sold liquor to the guy that run the theaters in High Point when the old Silver Scream Cowboys, Tex Ritter, um, Alan Rocky Lane. I got Alan Rocky Lane's gun belt and holster. Uh, I still have them in my collection. But I met they, they were my heroes, and, and they, some of them stayed with us. And Incredible. we kept the horses at our farm and trained them right there in the st outside the stables. They bring them out of the bull barn and out there in the opening and go through their paces. They'll tell you how old they were and sit down and all this kind of stuff. But I got to meet all them cowboys. I even met uh, Elvis Presley oh. uh, because of that, the connections that my daddy had with theaters. And my brother-in-law, Frank Smith, my daddy got him a job with announcing for Bill France in 47. 
and Frank also announced the first two Southern 500s. So, and and in the afternoons when France would come to town on Friday, he'd stay with us, and they finally got a house over yonder in Greensboro, I believe it's Lee Street over there. But uh, they go downtown to the WMFR radio station, and my daddy and, and uh, Bill France, and they get a pair of Frank Smith. He had a, a radio show, it's a country and western show, in the afternoon about three o'clock. Okay. And they'd talk about racing. Frank loved racing. And uh, anyway, uh, it, that's how Bill France got free advertisements, you know, and, and they talk about the racing. And, but there's so much that I saw, it's hard to describe. I don't know how much time you got. It'd take me a day and a half to tell you about all I said. <laughs> but uh, well, I could, this, this ask away. Now, this was all before, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this was all before NASCAR was actually founded. All of this you just told me happened before NASCAR was even a a, a sanctioning body, it was in the it was the uh, he, 40s, he, right? He it was NCSCC National Stock Car Championship Circuit, I believe it was. But it was NCSCC. The only designation that he had was on his ball caps that he had him and uh, Enix Staley and uh, Joe Epton later on. But uh, and they had a panel uh, wagon. I said, what would you call that? Panel truck, I guess it was. Okay. And it had those, that label on the side of it, and it had a, um, a speaker on the right front fender. He could pull up on the straightaway and get out with his microphone and talk through that speaker to you. And that's all I remember him having. And he would get to town early to go to promoting. And one thing he told my daddy, when daddy built his racetrack in 47, it was liquor money too, by the way. I left that out a while ago, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he opened it in June of 47, and Wilkesburg come right behind that, and Wilkesburg was looking money, too. But uh, he'd come to town and, and meet up with the guys, and they used to have meetings over here at the farm in front of the bull barn. And Mother called it the bull barn because they shot a lot of bull down there. She said it, you know. <laughs> Fair <laughs> but, enough. <laughs> but anyway, it was the NCSCC, and he also thanks my daddy's first race there in 19. 47 in June, but it's for NASCAR, y'all. And uh, what he would tell them, and I don't who else can tell you this, but if they were living, they could probably say the same thing I'm fixing to tell you. My daddy would call up all of his friends, the racers, you know, and they'd be 15 or 20 of them show up sometime as a designated time, you know. And France would, you know, they'd, uh, there'd be a drink or two available if you wanted to have something to drink. And uh, mother would run back and forth to the house bring water and whatever they wanted, you know. And, and I was eating this all up. I put a flat platform up in the tree and climbed the tree there so I could listen to them. Be right in the middle of it, you know. <laughs> I did. There's a mulberry tree right next to it, you know, and uh, the big oak. But uh, there was an oak tree over there so big. It was one of the biggest in North Carolina. The limbs on it was bigger than your body. I mean, they were big. But anyway, they'd come gather around that afternoon and, start talking, and France would tell him, here's what he say. He said, boys, we need to stick together. If we'll all stick together, everybody will benefit. You will make more money. The track owners will make more money. Promoters will make more money. And here's how they're going to do that. If you stick together, he'll have a guarantee of all the drivers, the good drivers are going to be there. He can advertise that. More people will come to see that race. There'll be more gate money. In essence, we'll all benefit. And that's what happened. And that was his, his hook, you know, we need to stick together. And he explained to them why. And he carried that on throughout 
the rest of the time with NCSCC until the day that NASCAR was formed there in uh, 47 that December, I guess it was. And the first race was there at Daytona Beach in February the next year officially, the first NASCAR race, I guess you would say. I believe it was February the 15th. Could be wrong about that, but that's pretty close to it. Now, but, uh, did, did everybody, were, were the promoters, even back then, were the promoters kind of bought into Bill's vision of this, or did he get any resistance from... from... He, he got resistance. He okay. did. Uh, see, what France... Here's, here's another thing that he did. you got to remember, he was six foot five or six. He had a, a strong voice. When he said something, when he walked into a room, it commanded attention to this guy walking into this room. They wanted to stop and listen to what he had to say. That's right. the kind of guy he was. Now, there was others out there competing with him, especially Bruton Smith. You had the Dixie Circuit. There was other circuits. There's two or three circuits right here in the Carolinas, and uh, they're all competing. And he was trying, he had been a racer, and he'd raced with most of them, you know. And so they knew him, and they trusted him. Because mm-hmm. he always, if he told you something, you could believe it. And uh, they, you couldn't say that for the others. You know, there's a reputation of some of them taking in the gate and then leaving. Yeah, after the race, there's no money, they were gone. But France was a man of his word. And that was another thing that he told him. He said, look, you can trust us. If we all stick together, the promoters can trust us that we'll be there. And and I'll give you an example. They went down east here to run one day, and the, and the, the weather was sort of iffy. It's going to rain. It's fact, it, it did, in fact, sprinkle some rain. Well, they came up there from Georgia and South Carolina all from down from uh, Virginia. They had a pretty good field of cars. Well, uh, the promoter was sort of wanting to, you know, run it, but he sprayed to him. France said, guarantee him a purse and a race. So this was still on his SC, NCSCC. What was it? NCSCC. It was National Championship Stock Car Shark. That's what it was. And uh, so he called the meeting and said, the boys said, uh, the weather don't look good. The man really not taking in much money here today, but he wants to go ahead and run it. And I think we really should. Now, what do y'all think? And they, uh, and he told him, said, now, I guarantee this purse, but I don't have all the money, but I'll make it up to you. But I won't, I promised him it would race. And the guy, some of them from Georgia didn't much want to. And my daddy stepped up and said, look, he's always done what he said he would do. I think we're already here, so why not go ahead and run this race? He's always promised us that he you know, would guarantee the purse and everything, and so we need to do it. If we don't, we're going to, you know, it's going to be over. Yeah. And France echoed that, and so the boys took another vote, and they voted to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stay, even though we're not going to get paid the full amount. We'll He'll pay us what he can and make it up to us. So that's what they done. Okay. And he, and that's, it, that's it, why they believed him. Now, his competition, uh, I don't know how that occurred, if that ever was a factor with them, but uh, they would uh, – promote against one another many times. If if one had a race like in Greensboro and doesn't have a race just as close to town as they could, they might run in Winston trying to hurt his crowd, you know. Oh, okay. And they had that competition between them. But uh, some of them had a reputation to say, well, if you come run, I'll give you $25. I'll guarantee you some tow money. And the drivers never got it. In fact, I know uh, Rex White, who is still with us today, 
Yes, sir. There's a guy still owes him money. I won't call his name, but uh, still owes him money of a guarantee he never got. Oh, wow. <laughs> Rex ain't forgotten either. But France prevailed because of what he had been through as a previous racer, you know, and uh, because he had a he had a business about him. And I think Annie B., his wife, had a lot to do with that, too, because she was right there behind him all the time. Now, there was a time that France, well, I'll tell you this story, down in Greenville, South Carolina, Greenville Pickens Racetrack. I believe the Blackwood Brothers built that track and owned it for years. Probably his family still does. I don't know that for sure, but I know they've been there a long time. Well, they was going to have a race there. I believe it's going to be on July the 4th. And uh, France uh, went there, and he's promoting it. And it turned out to uh, be a bad day to start with. And uh, France thought it was going to rain out, and he wasn't going to stick around. He's going to go back to Florida. And oh, wow. said, no, you can't do that. He said, we've got to stay. If you leave, they'll never believe in you again. And so he stayed. In fact, he, they loaded up and left. They got headed back down to Florida, and she kept telling him, said, you're making a bad mistake. You need to turn around and leave this thought behind and that they think it's going to rain. It may change. She just kept after him, telling one thing or the other to get him to turn around and go back. So finally he did. And guess what? It turned out to be a pretty day. Oh, wow. And and they done very well. And he said afterwards that convinced him that he could make it. Now, that story came, now believe this now, my daddy went, Jimmy Lou Allen went, Ed Samples went, Flock Boys was there. All of them went. Okay. Had he left, just think about this, with what happened, had he left, that would have ruined him. Yeah. But uh, he said afterwards that that convinced him that he could do this. It was hard, you know. I just think this thing was unruly, and he couldn't get all the guys together, and he kept telling them we've got to stick together. But he turned around and went back, and it cleared up that afternoon. They had a good race, and they made money, and black boys made money, and that got him going. And that one event right there in 47 showed him that could be done. I think what happened if he had not done that. It's crazy to think about if you, it, you know, again, those listening to this, if you just think about 1947 and think about, you know, what life was like back then or, or you know, how things were, um, you know, we didn't have a lot we of interstates. Have, we didn't have, we didn't have nothing. Didn't have no cell right. phone, no communication. The, the, what, Bill, what Bill had to go through and you know the things that had to happen in order for him to be successful um you know i feel like that that was so much bigger a risk back in the 40s than it would you know obviously is to start a racing series today where you have all the technology and and everything all the advantages to get the word out and and all of that and and you know it's a different time and and so when when you tell that story and you think about the fact that it was almost like bill as you say, if he'd kept going to Florida, none of this would have ever happened. And so his wife really gets so much of that credit to, you know, of, of, of her thought process, the business mind. No, 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 you gotta, you gotta turn around here. You gotta go back and you gotta, you gotta follow through. And, and, um, you know, that, that's, that's a pretty, incredible decision that he made to do that and and to think how it turned out well that's true um 
But, you know, they, they just made it from race to race. There wasn't a lot of money. Yeah. And after the war and everything, everything been rationed during the war. And it just, you know, coming to life again. And and those guys are, you can never, I mean, all of those guys need to be in some kind of Hall of Fame. And I believe Ed Samples won the race that day. Now, this story, basically, I know my daddy talked about it a little bit, but he didn't know that France had started to go home. The guy that told me the, the real story was J.B. Day, who lived this few miles from that racetrack and okay. was very close friends of the Blackwell brothers. Okay. J.B. Day's gone now, but uh, he he used to thumb going to races. He came to High Point Speedway by, from all the way down to Ensley. Uh, I guess Easley or Ensley is right outside of Greenville. Easley, yeah. A little yep. small community, and yep. he thumbed up here. And another guy that was here, and I think he may still be living, is Olin... Uh, the guy down in Daytona Beach, Florida. Um, his name, first name's Owen, but I can't remember his last name. He's a great guy. I had him on the radio show one time. Okay. So there's still a few people around from that era. And, and again, it, you, you think about how many years ago that that was. I mean, it's it's really incredible um, to to hear hear that story. Now, what are your some of your earliest memories of once nascar was actually formed um you know what was it like for your dad and the other drivers as as bill started to kind of um take hold with his vision and carry well, that out uh, the deal was this when he started nascar um of course if you look in the back of speed age magazines in 47 you'll see an ad in there all promoters drivers car owners we had a big meeting in Daytona Beach, Florida, and he named a date, December something, 1947. Yep. And with a telephone number. And uh, a lot of them showed up, and I guess it will show you in pictures how many were there and so forth. I couldn't name all of them, but some of them I do recognize. Yeah. And so he and uh, Bill Tudhill had already gotten together. In fact, Tudhill in some publications that people have interviewed Tudhill or listened to it back in the early days. Uh, we'll mention to you and that Ted Hill, he said that's his idea of forming an organization. Okay. I do know that uh, they went up to, uh, I believe, Rhode Island, outside of Providence, a little town up there, and had a race. It was on a paved track, I think a little short track, quarter mile track, something like that. It's a parking lot day because I looked it up and it shows an aerial view of it and they'd use it for parking. Okay for some factories there, but they went up there and, and I think Red Byron won it. My daddy didn't go, but Bonnie was there. Uh, some of the cars I recognized were there. I got a picture of it. And that was the first time he'd ventured that way up north, but that did happen in 47. And, uh, but, yeah, mod it was modified as usual. Now, the problem running modified, he thought that it was getting a little bit stale. And they were having trouble finding the 39 Fords. Oh, okay. Well, Bill was so many of them, you know. And uh, most of the drivers, and I'll say this, and it's just my opinion, they liked the 39 Ford. It's the first one to have hydraulic brakes on it, you know. And uh, that was a car preference because, in my opinion, Red Bolt, Raymond Parks had 39 Fords. They liked them. They made good liquor haulers. And so 
because of the 22 car and that number 14 car that uh, Red Vault had. Kate take, he was to, you know, taking care of him for uh, Raymond. Raymond paid all the bills. I, th I don't know that Raymond took any of the winnings. I think he gave it all to them. He just won the trophies. Okay. That was a pretty good deal for him, you know. And all yeah, they really? did, they had the uh, buckshot working for him. And, and, of course, they had several others. And they had a, an engine room. He wouldn't let nobody in, in there except him. I'm talking about Red Vault now. And so they did so well that everybody else thought, well, that's what you got to have 39 Ford. So my daddy, I saw he ever liked was 39 Ford. And I don't know how many of them he tore up, probably over a dozen of them. So you multiply that out by however many drivers was back then. That's a whole lot of 39 Fords. Now, Bill Snowden liked the 40 Fords and the 41 Ford. But some of those run the 40s, and some like the 40s better for hauling liquor. But it's just a preference of choice, I guess you might say. Sure. So what happened, Tom, is this. France did, and I know this because he told my daddy so right over at the Big Oak, that, uh, you know, he's going to call a Ford Motor Company and see if they'd build some more 39 Fords. Oh, wow. And he did. But they told him, as I understand, that uh, it wouldn't look good on their behalf if they started building an old car they built a few years ago all over again. So they was in the business selling new cars. <laughs> so... It's like Makes what happened sense. next. What what happened next was uh, we got to do something, and and he didn't. They started a sportsman uh, class, you know. They're trying to come up with methods to keep this thing rolling, you know, just sure. like Wilkesboro will be too, you know. What yeah. are they going to do next? So, uh, so next thing you know, they have a, um, I believe it was Jacksonville, somewhere down the lower south here. They had a. After the race, I believe it was, they, or maybe during the race, or maybe it was between the main event and, and the, the Constellation race, something like that. But they did at one point in time during that Sunday uh, get some of the newer cars out there and just make an exhibition run with them racing against one another. And the crowd liked it. Now, what France explained to them was this. If we race the newer type cars, call them strictly stock, then the factories will get involved. If we can get the factories and or the automobile uh, manufacturers to get them involved, it will help racing. We'll get them involved, it'll create more excitement. More people come to the race to see what the best brand a car is to buy. Okay. Naturally, the factories get involved, want to produce the best car to sell the most cars. That was his other hook, you see. And maybe I didn't explain it the way that he would have, but Made that's sense. the way I saw it. And so next thing you know, they run an exhibition race, and it went over very well. They had the very first race at uh, Charlotte at the uh, what they called back then the new Charlotte Speedway, which today would that's nothing new about that track. It was old plowed up field, red dirt, and they uh, had a gully in turns, uh, one and two, I believe it was, down there, much like Wilkesboro. Okay. And a fence put up around it out of slabs from a sawmill. And... Uh, it was no more than any other track, except three-quarter mile. And so, incidentally, the first three-quarter mile track built in North Carolina was up at uh, Mount Airy Speedway in 1946. Oh, okay. Mount Airy, okay. My daddy raced up there, too, and I went up there. He had to cross the wooden bridge, and that thing was sagging and crackling oh. and everything else going across it. You wonder if you're going to fall in. It's still there. It's rotted away, but the river's still there. But anyway, uh, getting back to that deal, uh, the first strictly stock race. And uh, 
it was very little advertisement did on that. And in fact, you'll go back to the Charlotte Observer over to the library over there in Charlotte, and I have researched this because we got to talking about it one time trying to figure out how he went about doing all this, getting the word out. Most advertisements all about Bruce Smith running Concord and, and around the Modifieds. And all it says about Bill France, he's going to do an experiment such and such a weekend. That's all it says. If you can wow. find more of that, I'd like to see it. So uh, my daddy didn't have no new car. And he was going to let you run like uh, either a new car or back further, no further back in three years to get more cars. Okay. So anyway, uh, my daddy didn't talk to Bill. Uh, I guess he might have talked to him about it prior. But uh, during that uh, couple of weeks span there, Bill was France probably busy getting cars and make sure things showed up over there as well. The, uh, the thing that happened was that um, it rained during that week off and on, and they were trying to qualify cars. And this guy that wrote for Dick wrote the comments for Dick Tracy, what was his name? Was it Mosley or something like that, wasn't it? Zach Mosley, my name's wrote, wrote Dick Tracy. And the funny papers, you know. Yeah, I remember well, Dick Tracy, little, but I don't remember who Okay, it was. I believe his name was Zach Mosley. Okay. But he did a little mention of it in his comic strip there about being this strictly stock race in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, wow. So there's two guys from uh, Great Bend, Kansas, named uh, Ben McIntosh and Millard Clothier, I believe it was. I believe Clothier had the dealership out there, Lincoln Mercury, and I believe McIntosh was the money man. And out in that part of the country, they had a guy out there driving named uh, uh, the guy that won the first race, what, Jim Roper. So they came to Charlotte to be involved in that race. I think that Mosley was going to drive his number 44 car. He had number 34 and 44, but he backed out. And so he went to Bill France and asked him, said, can you find me a driver? Well, the next thing that happened was the phone rang there at the house over here at my daddy's, and... Uh, is Annie France, Annie B. And she asked Bill, my daddy, how you doing? And uh, I'm doing fine. What's going on, Charlotte? So they got to talking. She said, well, she said, Bill, called, everybody called him Big Bill. So you had Bill Snow, Bill Blair, Bill Sockle, Bill France. So Bill, Bill France <laughs> designated Big Bill. Yeah, so everybody called him Big Bill. She said, well, said Big Bill is worried to death that there's nobody going to show up for this race, and they don't have all the cars that he thought he was going to have. And uh, and he wanted me to call you to see if you was coming and uh, do you have anything to bring over and race will for him. And, uh, and he wanted to talk to you about another possibility. But he's worried to death there's not going to be no crowd. And my dad said, well, you let me talk to him. He said, he ain't got to worry about a daggone thing. He said, everybody I talked to over here is coming to Charlotte. She said, well, I wish you would. He said, maybe it'll pimp him up. But they said, put him on the phone. So next thing you know, Bill France got on the phone, and they started talking. But they said, look, said, you ain't got nothing to worry about. They said, everybody I talked to over here in High Point is coming to Charlotte. Now, High Point back then, Tom, was probably 30,000, maybe not, but 25, 30,000. I went to Big Town. Okay. And the reason my dad knew everybody, and he says everybody he talked to, he had a liquor out. They owned, they had two milk trucks delivering milk all over town. Oh, wow, okay. So they, they had the biggest farm around, so they knew everybody. 
So he explained that to Bill France. He ain't got to worry about a thing. And Bill France said, well, Bill said, uh, one reason I call you, I appreciate that, said, one reason I call you, said, there's two guys from Kansas here, and they got two cars. And they brought their own driver, and, and the owner was going to drive one of them, but uh, he, he wants me to find him a driver and said, I immediately thought about you. Would you come over, and if you're not bringing anything to run? They said, I don't have enough but to modify it. They said, well, would you come over and, and uh, drive this guy's car? It's a Lincoln, brand new. He said they took them out on Wilson Boulevard and tried them out and said, Roper's going to take the fastest one, naturally. They said, I don't care. I'm going <laughs> to drive down with you. And he said, great. He said, I'll tell them that, uh, that you'll be here. And, I said, and so my daddy showed up on Sunday morning. He didn't go Friday or Saturday. He showed up on Sunday morning. So my daddy showed up over and, and they had a meeting. Um, the two owners of the car, um, Clothier and... Uh, and, and uh, Jim Roper and McIntosh, and they decided that the drivers would get 40% and that uh, Roper and my daddy would split that, and then uh, they would take the other 60%. And I guess that uh, McIntosh had uh, go, you know, paid for a trip and everything. Okay. I guess that's the way that was his involvement in it. So my daddy, Benny didn't qualify. He started in the rear. And they had a few more cars show up, and they gave him a better feel, you know. And Bob Flock sat on, uh, I believe Bob sat on the pole. And I'm telling you this from memory. I don't certainly have anything to read because it's all gone. You sure, got, yeah. You don't talk to somebody about it. you got to talk to somebody that's living. Yeah. That's solid. So uh, the race was delayed at the start because people kept coming across that track, wanting in. And Bill France told Taylor Warren to make him a picture of all those people coming across that back stretch over there from the highway in the parking lots. That's the prettiest thing he'd ever seen. And to make him a picture because when he went to bed at night, he wanted to put that picture up over his bed. So that would be the first thing he saw in the morning when he got up and the last <laughs> thing before he went to bed. Now, Taylor Warren's part in this deal was he was NASCAR's second photographer. Okay. Um, guy in Greensboro, Jack Cancer, was his first one. And I'll tell you about why Jack Cancer ain't with him no more. That'll be an interesting story. But anyway, Taylor came from up north, Dover, Delaware, to go to work for all of the studios here in High Point. They were a photographer for showroom setups, for advertisement, and all the magazines for furniture. See, I was furniture city, uh, capital of the world, right here in High Point. And so uh, the owners of the uh, all in the studio were customers of my daddy, and Urban Black and uh, Lolly Black, I believe was her name. And uh, so they introduced Taylor to Bill. Taylor liked racing. In fact, he won some kind of contest making pictures for uh, uh, Brownie. Was it Brownie cameras? An old day? Maybe it was Kodak. Yeah, Brownie. Kodak. Maybe okay. that's Kodak, yeah. I remember Brownie. Well, he won some kind of award, and they put him, uh, gave him some money and some cameras and stuff for winning. And he went to races making pictures while he built up there. And he had a side job, you know, of uh, working for another company. So he came down here and they introduced him to Bill. Bill, my daddy, carried him to Wilkesboro to race and uh, introduced Taylor to Bill France. And Taylor wanted to go to work for Bill France. And France told him, said, uh, I've got a photographer, but maybe I can use you part-time at some of these races that Jack can't go to. And so Jack had a job over in uh, 
Grace wrote too. I, I don't recall what he did, but anyway, he was part time making pictures for Bill France in the beginning. And uh, so that's how Taylor got on with uh, Bill France, and that's why he was over in 1949 making pictures. And that picture he made, I would love to know what happened to it. This France family still got it, but that was what was behind making that picture. Was Bill France was so happy to see that crowd coming across there. Wow. And so they delayed putting a race on, and the highway patrol come to him and said, look, said, the highways are blocked for miles around, so we got to do something. You need to get these people in here or else shut them gates where they all go home. And so France had to give them about 15 more minutes or so, and they shut them gates. And uh, the papers don't report the true figures that come across that track, but uh, the big estimate was about 19,000 people showed up that way, and he wasn't expecting wow. probably about 3,000. <laughs> so he saw right away, you know, well, this is going to be great. Now, the race itself, and there's no history wrote about this. If you if you can find it, good luck. But uh, <laughs> uh, Bill, and I say Bill, I can still call my daddy Bill because all the people that came to that farm every day to the bull barn, those that was his customers, all of them called him Bill. So I grew up, everybody called him Bill. I called him Bill myself. I called him Mother Lucille. That's their name to me to this day. Okay. Bill and Lucille. I never knew Mother and Dad, you know. Interesting. But I just grew up as a habit of calling them what everybody else called them. So anyway, uh, I'm just a little different, I guess you might say. But that race, uh, <laughs> I guess, really established in the, in the history of stock car racing as being the first cup race. It was a very successful event. And uh, the race, there's not much wrote about it today. I've looked for it and you just can't find it. The next mission about that race was that there's a lawsuit. Let me tell you about this. It involves a race. Um, what happened, my daddy came from back towards the back of the pack. I guess he started last, and some others didn't qualify and, and they started back in the back, too. I don't know who was the furthest back. But on lap five, he was in first place. And he led the next 145 laps. And he lapped field. Now, some say he lapped him four times. Some say he lapped him, I'm talking about second place, lapped him twice. Wow. And uh, he asked the guy, before the race on that car, he said, hey, you want to drive this thing? It's a new car. He said, drive the hell out of it. That's what he told him. He said, I've got plenty more of it. Don't you worry about it. You just drive <laughs> it as hard as you can. So that's what he did. Now, later on in an interview with uh, between uh, Benny Phillips or Bob Hoffman, I forget which one it was, but they were, it was one of them. I believe it was Benny Phillips interviewed Jim Pascal. Jim Pascal showed up with his daddy's uh, 46 Coupe, I believe it was, Ford Coupe. But Jim Pascal in that interview told uh, the writer, I'm, I'm thinking it was Benny Phillips, that Blair made them all look bad that day. <laughs> made them all look bad. He passed where he come to him. If he called him in the corner, he passed him in the corner. If he called him on straight away, he passed him on straight away. It, wow. He kept that thing going. And he come in to make the pit stop. There's no way you're going to run 200 laps on a tank of gas. And and the guy named Glenn Dunaway was a second place. Glenn got his ride because he was walking down the, the pit lane there, and, and Hubert was up under the car working on it, doing something to it. 
and he and he come out from under and saw Glenn stand there, and he asked Glenn, said, Glenn, you got anything to drive over here today? And Glenn said, no, I'll just over here spectator. He said, well, how about driving this car? It was a 46-fold coupe liquor car. And it had some angle iron welded to the frame down, and they come within an inch or so of the uh, top of the spring. That had buggy springs on the rear. Back in those days, everybody called them buggy springs. That's the way the horse and buggies were sprung up, you know. Okay. So at each at where the shackles at each end of the spring, they would give and flex so that the car had a good ride to it. Now for a racetrack, what Hubert done for liquor, which worked also on racetrack probably, um, he welded these uh, angle iron and placed it so that if you had a load of liquor on it, when all that weight settled down, it settled against the spring, wouldn't let it set any further down and it would not be recognized as a liquor hauler. See, you load them down with liquor, they, the ASM would set down, and the lights would be shining up in the sky, you know, some of them load them so Okay, heavy. gotcha. Well, that's sort of an exaggeration, but that gives you an idea of what I'm trying to tell you. Yeah. It was an ex-liquor car, but that day it was a race car. And so the guy who was inspecting them, I believe his name was Al Chrysler, I think he was a motorcycle guy in a way, but... Uh, uh, he he saw all that, but he never said nothing about it. He didn't complain at all to Hubert. Well, when my daddy fell out due to an errant pit stop, he come in to get some gas. And so one of the guys that worked at the uh, Lincoln Mercury place over there in Charlotte was going to put a quart of oil in. So he raised the hood on the left side and was putting a quart of oil in. Well, a bystander, he was so excited, and his adrenaline was up, you know, he had had to help. So he reached over there and was going to put some water in because see a lot of them cars run hot that day. He just knew in his mind that this car needs some water in because everybody else was having trouble. That Well, not everybody, but a lot of them were having trouble running hot seat. Well, they started out the track to be muddy, right? Well, if you run behind somebody, next thing you know, your radiator's full of mud. <laughs> you run hot. Yes. So that did happen. That as the track dried out, it no longer was a problem. So this guy just reached over there and took the cap off and when he did, the water gushed up out of there, and uh, it come back down. It burnt that, blistered that guy on his shoulder and arms. Oh, wow. The water come back down on him, and he run. And so they grabbed up a bucket of cool water and poured in it. When they did, it cracked the thermostat housing, which was on the cylinder head. And, of course, it could keep, could keep no water in thin when it cracked that. And that put him out of the race. And... Uh, uh, McIntyre told him, said, uh, go out there and run this as long as it'll run. Don't worry about it. So he ran a few more laps and pulled in. So my daddy got out of the car. He was looking for that guy that uh, pulled the cap off, and they found him. He was standing on the back of the piss, you know. And my daddy went over to him, and he was going to just, he started hollering at him, you know. He, that guy, he, he took off and ran. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. You can imagine what he told him. I can't tell you over there, but I'm uh, sure, yeah. you, you can get the picture. Well, when he fell out, that left Dunaway. He led the race the rest of the way and got the flag, and the other Lincoln, Jim Roper, was driving finished second. Well, they inspect them post-race, you know, and, and so uh, the inspector said, well, these springs, it's not strictly stopped back here. They, they've been reinforced here. Well, gives them advantage in the corners, you know. Without a load of liquor on there, did it really give you an advantage? I don't know if those springs were touched with those angle iron braces. 
Uh, maybe it leaned over the corners, maybe it did, but I just can't imagine. It seemed to me like the track got a little bit rough and it probably hopped up and down a lot. But yeah. nevertheless, the guy said that's not stopped. So it disqualified him. Well, Hubert, he got upset about that. said, well, I've been here all week and never said a word about it. That just ain't right. And uh, so anyway, they, France backed up his uh, inspector and said, well, we got the, this is not strictly stopped. It's not approved, so you don't win. You have, you'll have you be disqualified. So Hubert went and got a lawyer, and they tried it in court about two weeks later in Greensboro. And the court said that uh, France prevailed. So Hubert got really upset about that. Well, in the meantime, uh, when they disqualified him, the drivers passed a hat and gave Glenn Dunaway some money for winning that race. Oh. And then uh, Hubert didn't get nothing. They ran the next race with Daytona Beach, strictly trying to change it to Grand National, I believe it was. It's still strictly stock, that's what it was. Uh, you got to remember this a long time ago. Oh, I'm for going, sure. I ain't yeah. reading nothing. I'm just trying to tell you what I remember. So, uh, anyway, Daytona, uh, France didn't make much money there. And um, I believe that uh, Red Barn won that race. And Ryan Parsons called it. Had uh, Overland something on it. it. It's like Export Import Company. Okay. On the side of that thing said Overland something on it. But it's a red, uh, dark red. Uh, the paint was dark red on that car, but number 22. And my daddy uh, run the Lincoln down there, and uh, it run out of gas. He left some of that race, and it, it run out of gas. And uh, I can't tell you where he finished, because I don't remember. But the third race was Okanichi. Now, the reason France didn't do very well there, there's a lot of people there, but you, a lot of them walked in free. See, if you come across Inland Harbor there, or something up and down that side of the coast, of the harbor, you could walk in free. Oh, okay. You have two miles stretch, so you could come across the Palmetto and I get in free. That's why later on he put signs up rattlesnakes, rattlesnakes infesting here to keep <laughs> people from doing that. He didn't own that land, so he couldn't you know, physically put a fence or anything right. and put people out there. So everybody got in free, and they was coming in, getting in the trunks and everything else, you know, coming in. Well, so that race, he just, you know, is, I guess he was not bad or anything, but he was sort of wondering, you know, what to expect the next one, and he had the schedule he'd already made up. His third race was, uh, uh, let's see, I believe Okanichi, that's what it was at. Now, what he did to Okanichi was this. He put all he had into it, all the money he had in that he could spend for advertising, and he really got on the horn and started, you know, promoting yeah. Well, that was going to be the make-or-break deal. If it was success, then he could continue on. If it was not, he would probably close her down. Oh, wow. As far as being a strictly stocker division. Well, it turned out very good for him because he had a good feel of cars. And uh, the dude drove a Lincoln down there again, and something happened to it mechanically. But uh, that's where Fireball Roberts won his first race. Wasn't it? I believe it was, yeah. That's where he drove for Sam Rice. He drove an old car called Ragmop, and it, he'd bought that car, I believe, it previously belonged to uh, maybe Bob Flock. It might have been a liquor car. Okay. But it's all beat up, and they call it Ragmop because you cranked it up. It's a war out the main barns and knock into the oil pressure built up on it. It would settle down, you know, and didn't hear no more noises. But 
I believe it was number seven or one. They said eleven or seven. I can't, I can't recall what it was, but my dad drove that car later on. But uh, anyway, he ended up winning the race, and he just got married, and uh, and it turned out they had, I believe, about twenty-two, twenty-three thousand people. It was a big crowd. Now, wow. What they reported, what they reported in the, to the government, I don't recall, but <laughs> it's probably much, much less than that. Probably three thousand, right? Yeah. So after that race, come Monday or Tuesday, one day during the week. Bill France called my daddy up and said, look, sell that modified. The future is strictly stopped. That's the future of it. And so my daddy, he sold his modified, I guess, 1950. Okay. But uh, anyway, um, uh, he hooked up with uh, Sam Rice. I driving some of his cars for him. But uh, he led uh, that year. I don't know how many laps to run. I know but my daddy led over half the laps and only run six of the races. He had a chance to win at uh, uh, North Willsboro. He sat on the outside pole. Bob was on the pole. He jumped in the lead of that Cadillac of Sam Rice's, and my daddy led the next 180 laps. And the motor blowed up between laps to go. Mm. And he went to Langhorn, and, and I don't remember. He had, he had so many opportunities, but racing being what it is, you never know. You never win it to the last lap, and you get that checker flag. For sure. But... Uh, he drove the you-know-what out of him, and uh, he didn't know about saving a car. You know, he just held it as a race. That's what he did, race it, you know. For sure. But, you know, he was, to to really look at it back, see, he was 41 years old, 1953, and back in those days when you had raced on these dirt tracks, they were rough, and you, you eat dirt. He spit, he spit red dirt until about Tuesday. Ugh. And, and it was hard on those drivers. It, they were men. You didn't have to compare to today's drivers. Yeah. So this Larson guy drives that number five car. He is he is a tremendous driver. He really is. Could he have made it back then? Probably. But he'd have to get him some muscle to handle them cars. No power steering. Big old 4,000-pound cars. Oh, yeah. Holes in the track a foot deep. Breaking spindles and axles. And from the day one, they started having to reinforce stuff. Uh, factories finally began to make heavier-duty suspensions, mainly shocks and springs. Axles were stronger, different different kind of material. Spindles and hubs the same way. Larger lug nuts and studs. Bigger brakes, bigger radiators. Just a, a bigger gas tanks. The factories got involved like Bill France predicted they would. And it helped everybody, the consumer of automobiles driving up down the highway for safety, endurance, the race cars the same way. It all benefited just like Bill France said it was. Now, I'm not told this story probably as it should be told or maybe as eloquent as some writers could do it, but I've told you pretty much what I saw. And there's, you know, if we had two days where you could, you know, analyze what I can tell you, then you could probably write a beautiful story. But the way I do it's probably been a little bit crude, but I hope people will understand that I'm just coming from memory. I have no notes here in front of me, and I have nobody to tell me nothing but my wife. So well, you now, just ask right on. The, the, the thing that I find so crazy here is I've been trying to follow along with what, you know, the years that, that these stories are from. What year were you born, Bill? 1938. Okay, so you're only a you're less you're not even a teenager yet when a lot of this is happening. You're still 
11 or 12 years old or whatever. That's right. Uh, I, I, was, I was towing cars when I was 15 years old, towing race cars and old knuckle bar. Incredible. I mean, what a, what a, what a youth. City and got a ticket for running. Well, they didn't give me a ticket. I, I went through a bridge to come out to the other side of it. My daddy got too tired of this race at Langhorn. And uh, so come out the other side, there's a stoplight there. And, and uh, he told me to follow Jimmy Lou Allen. And Jimmy knew his way home. I didn't know where the heck I was at. Sure. That's got, I think if I remember correctly, was come down Highway 1 looking for 29 down there about Richmond. But uh, I just followed Jimmy. Jimmy made it under caution. I made it. If, I, if I'd have stopped, man, I wouldn't want to get lost up there in that big place. So I wouldn't <laughs> run the red light, too. And then a cop saw us, and he pulled us all over and carried us to the precinct. And uh, down there, they come out and looked at the race cars and talked a little bit and laughed and said, well, you boys be careful. So we come on down the road. And... Uh, one of my classmates was with us, Nathan Yarbrough, and we headed down the road. And, and I'll tell you the truth. I believe I went to sleep, and a Greyhound bus, or a bus, blowed his horn. That woke me up. Wow. And uh, next time I find a place to pull over, I did and let me dead dry. But that, that was my first experience of towing. That's and, amazing. Uh, so in 56, I used to come back from racetrack driving with the student hunter license. I finally got some license. Billy Myers' car, because he'd come by himself to a lot of tracks. He didn't have a lot of help, but he had a Mercury deal, so did Pascal. I was working yeah. for Pascal. And I'd, I'd come down the road driving for him, and he'd sing every Hank Williams song that he knew so he wouldn't go to sleep. He told me, that don't you put on the brakes, slow down, come down the hill, because this thing goes, you know, look like a snake coming down through here, and you'll lose it. So uh, I'd bottom out some of them hills, probably run 65 mile an hour. So it wouldn't run all that fast, but wow. back the roads wasn't what they were today. So if you run 55 mile an hour, you're going to plenty. You couldn't stop them. Good grace, they hope nobody pulled out in front of them. Finally, they built tow bars that had brakes on them. They had that uh, reaction lever that you hooked a, a cable to your brake pedal. So crude, you wouldn't believe it. A lot of these people, they wouldn't get out of an electric chair to get something like what we had. <laughs> Man, oh man, this is incredible. I feel like you're right. We could spend an entire day just uh, detailing all the stories. I want to move us ahead just a sure. little bit. And, and I, I, I hope that we can get together and do some more shows where we can go into some of the, the more detail about races racing. But, um, but uh, I, I want to capture kind of the rest of, of your history. So you were, you, when did you start racing factory drag cars? Well, uh, well, I got involved in drag racing. I figured back then, you know, anybody could drag race. Didn't you? Didn't have to have a lot of people helping you. Didn't have to have a lot of money. You could go race what you drove back forth to work. Sure. And I've raced on like a, a grass, dirt, uh, runways, airports, uh, private airports. We'd get together on the weekend sometime just drag race. Okay. Never had a finish line. You slide up to the fence with your brakes locked up and hope you didn't hit it. Some of them did. <laughs> And so it was very crude and rude back in those days. So later on, uh, they began to get more professional in the 50s with drag racing. And uh, they formed, I guess, NHRA and a few others. And it wasn't professional much, but it was an organization that they began to have rules and regulations. And it organized, and they could uh, begin to maybe pay a little bit of money. And they didn't charge much to go to drag races back then. But it was I called it a poor man's sport in a way. 
Okay. Uh, you could get in fairly cheap, and you could go and come wherever you wanted to, and you could leave when you wanted to, and there was not that many people to be a crowd. National events, as they call them, I think, the first year was out, what, about 1955 in Oklahoma City, thereabouts, uh, somewhere out in Oklahoma. And so if you were round track racing, you were familiar with, uh, very familiar with what each uh, year was going to happen with the manufacturers as far as horsepower and, and weight. Okay. Heads up as to what's going to be the best drag car or race car. Generally, what you could drag race, you could also round track race it. Not not always on every item, because on some of the drag cars, they begin to put fiberglass and aluminum pieces like bumpers and fenders, but Bill France wouldn't let you do that. Okay. Yeah, wouldn't be stock. Right. So um, so anyway, I got interested in that stuff. Just my buddies were doing some of it, so I got me a car, and... Uh, I uh, you know, had a 62 Super Duty Pontiac, and I had a 64 GTO, had a 65 GTO, and then began to get some exhibition cars. This was in the 60s. And then I quit for a while because I didn't have the money to do it. I never made no money round track racing. I mean, I did. Uh, Pascal paid me $20 a race to run two or three races a week, and I'm pretty good. But I still did with Mother and Ed, you know, and didn't cost me nothing. Sure. Look, I never, I didn't have to work. They would feed and clothe me, you know. But I wanted to always be doing something active in racing, and I enjoyed it. I loved it. Never, never called it work. It's something I did, and I loved it. I was like my daddy in that way, you know. He never called it work. Yeah. My daddy had Gosh. a life of leisure, according to him, but he worked every day. Yeah. He had a farm, which he finally got rid of, his part of it. He had a truck. He hauled. He hauled liquor. He sold liquor. He got in a service station. He raced. He sold ball tickets. He he was active all the time. And he knew the name, first name of all the lawmen. In fact, his dad raised uh, Doc Lee, the sheriff of Guilford County there. And so if there's going to be a raid on my daddy's part of the farm, Doc, come tell him when it's going to be. If ain't liquor or anything around, be sure and get rid of it right quick. And I can tell you a lot of stories about there, and, and I've went. I went and delivered a liquor with him many a time and say I'd be a, a ploy because here's a little kid riding with his father down the street. Would he be delivering liquor? No. That's in the eyes of a lawman only. Oh, sure. That would and make sense, enough, right? Yeah. Yeah, I tell you nothing he did. Bill France has been with Daddy delivering liquor. Now, what? And I was in the car, I sat in the back seat. But when he come, see, 29 came through here. And France promoted Greensboro. My daddy promoted over at Tri-City of North High Point outside of the country then. He promoted over at Bill France, promoted over in Winston at Peace Haven. Okay. Uh, the state fairgrounds over there. Lexington. Uh, track over there. And uh, so he wanted to put up posters. So he'd come over to my daddy's place. He'd have his old, like down that panel truck, as I remember, the black one had that NCSCC on the side of it to start with. And later on, of course, he had the NASCAR thing. But uh, he'd get his sack of nails and posters, and they stopped the intersection. Bill France get out, and they left the poster on the telephone. You could do that back then. Yeah. You didn't have to go downtown and get a permit. You could do it. But they'd go take it to Mechanicsville, five points. They'd go into all the, like the pool, Bing's pool room, Leonard's drugstore, the service station on the corner. And Bill France and my dad go in, they put the posters, and they let, let them do it, and never say a word. They knew who Bill France was over here. He's like one of the boys. Okay. They put the posters in the windows on telephone poles, in the pool room, barbershop, 
just everywhere. They spend a day doing that. It's promoting. Take him down to the radio station, yep. get him on the air, promote him. So in the meantime, when they're doing that, for daddy had to make a run, that you know, we'd do it on the way. When I say make a run, what they do, they'd call. And mother take notes who called where at. And uh, my dad be out delivering liquor. Now they might go for hour two, you not not get to make a call, so he'd be working on his race car, doing what he wanted to do. But then he'd get two or three calls, he might put it in the head, catch some sassy roar, a uh, uh, blue corduroy jacket, had pockets on the inside. That's what he put the liquor on the inside of his coat. Okay. He'd get out, walk to the door, knock on the door, and they'd hand him money, he'd have a liquor, and he'd turn around, thank him, and walk back to the car. And me and Francis sat in the car while he'd done that. And we might come to another intersection that looked like a lot of traffic. They'd get out and put up the posters on the, on the telephone poles. That's the way it happened. Wow. How you think of that? It's incredible. So you you were racing uh, you were racing factory drag cars, and then yeah, uh, that's right. How how did that go for you? What was, what were the early yeah. days like of you actually doing I that? Had a lot of I had a lot of money. Never made money. Most of money I ever made drag racing was uh, later on. Um, see, back in the, I had to buy my own car back then, or I might get a deal for a dealership. Right, dealer cost. Most of them I financed GMAC, made payments on them. On your... they, didn't know, they didn't know it was a race car. <laughs> they told them. Oh, that's <laughs> great. G, GMAC is now called Ally. Yes. That's what's on that 48 car. A lot of people don't know the connection, but that's a fact. Yeah. And we was in a, we had the 53 Oldsmobile tribute car, my dad's 53 win, in one of those commercials, and it's still being shown today. It's that star of that commercial. Okay. But, uh, yeah, that's what. But I had... I had uh, I won 64 GTO. It's brand new. made a B stock race around that. I won B stock championship in uh, in Alabama, and uh, I was getting trophies, and trophies just didn't pay much. So I started getting them. They, if you you had a choice, you got a trophy or ten dollars. So trophies must have been real cheap, you know, back then. Yeah. So I started getting the ten dollars because that paid for my gas anyway. And we burned high test. Uh, Pure old gas or Amico, I believe. Amico or Pure old had the best gas back in those days. And then we got to putting, uh, getting a, God, see what they call that, Troy oil, I believe it was, or banana oil. Banana oil, yeah, would mix with alcohol. So begin to run a mixture of uh, methanol and gas, but you had to have that blend, I believe it was called, banana oil to make it mix, you know, keep yeah. it in suspension. And then later on, what really happened, I had, uh, I had two. I had a road car 65 GTO and a race car 65 GTO. And just going broke was what I was doing, so I finally got rid of them. And uh, you really need help to go drag racing if he's going to do it. And, and you, But later on, when I got on my feet, I started buying these cars back. It was not expensive to do that. And so in the 80s, there's a guy in Oklahoma, Ames, Oklahoma, named Brent Hike and his wife, Terry and my wife Sheila and I, we I made a phone call and uh, he and I got together with our old factory race cars and staged a race up in uh, up in uh, see uh, gosh it was up in outside of Marston, Illinois I believe it was it's where Arnie Bezel was from there's a track out there I can't remember the name of it. Right, right along the Mississippi River. Oh, wow. Okay. So anyway, uh, the guy advertised uh, 
uh, factory drag cars are back, and be sure and come out this weekend. Sunday, 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 be there, yeah. be there. Sunday, 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 yeah. Yes, yeah, so I carried yeah. two cars up there, and uh, Artie Bezik drove one of them, and uh, got the guy from Chi-Town Hustler thing to drive the other ones. I cannot recall his name at this time, but he drove two of my cars, and they paid me $1,500 a piece. And Brent and Terry brought two cars, and we staged an old match race like they did back in the 60s. They filled that place up. Then we went down to um, West Palm Beach, Florida. Dick Rosa had bought that track down there and uh, did the same thing, a blast from the past. I carried two cars there. I got $1,500 a piece. Expensive. Wow. And uh, some, uh, Brent came back down with his cars, and uh, some others brought theirs. And we had Grumpy Jenkins there, uh, and uh, Don Nicholson, Arnie, myself, Brent, and some others. And it was, they filled that place up. That actually, the writers claim that uh, Brent Hyde and his wife and and, and Sheila and myself for bringing back the style to drag racing. We got credit for that, and they put us in the Muscle Car Museum, Muscle Car Museum, or Muscle Car Magazine, Muscle Car Magazine Hall of Fame. Brent and I both. Wow. So we got a little recognition out of it, and they'd pay us to come and do that, and and we did all right there for several years bring these cars show them again of course as far as the investment all we never we didn't do it for money we did because sure right and if we get our expenses we're just happy you know we just tickle to death but we had so much fun meeting one another and talking about the old racing ronnie sox got reinvolved in it a lot of those guys were brought back and and what they said was same thing old racers tell you we thought everybody had forgotten about us but they hadn't. They wanted to come see them again. They wanted yeah. to hear the stories. It's like what you're talking to me today. You want to know the stories. But you ain't going to believe. Some of these guys, it, they'll tell you, it added another five, six, eight years to our life. I bet. Yeah. That's, that's what happened. And and I was so honored to be with these guys again and see them because a lot of them like Beswick and Nicholson and Sox, they were my heroes. They're basically the same age I was, but if I went to the Greensboro Piedmont Dragway this weekend, it would be because Ronnie Sox would be there to match right. race Grumpy Jenkins or Arnie Bezik. They were my heroes, just like the Silver Screen Cowboys. It was, you know, that's that part of our life and our part of our history is different than today. And, uh, you know, the guys that's racing today, they're there to make money. They want a big contract. Absolutely. Well, it's a career, like sure. Yeah. yeah. But back then, you know, we wanted to make money too, but a million dollars? I mean, they get a lot more than that today on some of them, but uh, yeah. you God, we never, that's just beyond. But we lived the life that a lot of them like to live today. But we did it just to exist and to enjoy and be a part of. All these guys were our friends. We knew them all over, from coast to coast. I mean, I knew all them guys like Dick Landy out in California and, and all, Motown Missile guy, Don Carlton, and Melrose Missile out in California, uh, Yother. But they ain't hardly a drag boy that I had never had met. I talked to all of them, and and as far as round track racing, I knew most of them around here. Sure. But uh, and I could tell you back in the forties the color of the car, what it was. Uh, I still know it today. All the colors of the cars, and most of them I've met. Most of them's been at the old house, the old home place. But it's just uh, a beautiful memory that I have that. I think about every day, and tears will come to my eyes, and chill bumps will go up down my arms yeah, thinking about it's, this. 
Justin got Kirby. to meet the Cowboys too, you know. Yeah. John Wayne, Bill Elliott, Long Rangers. It's been five Long Rangers. Played oh, I didn't know that. The last one, sure. Wow. But I knew all that. I met them all. But uh, I met Elvis, believe it or not. My sister got an autograph. Elvis autographed some pieces mm. for her. My sister said, well, he ain't never going to mount nothing. She throwed hers away. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was probably not a good decision, was it? Uh, but, you know, and I've always been involved in racing when I could afford it. I never made no money at it, and uh, I didn't expect to. Um, there's been a lot of people lost money at racing, but uh, it, it's what it is. But it is an opportunity. How many sports can you get into like that? Well, there isn't. That's what makes our sport special, and that's why I love just sitting here listening to folks like you tell these stories of the early days because – I mean, I grew up in the 70s and I grew up in a small town in New York State where, you know, I don't even know if you know what a super modified is. But back then, yeah, they were stepping stones to Indy. And it was, you know, I, I remember, you know, you, you just those were my heroes. And you, and you, you know, I think everybody had had that experience, you know, and now it's different because you, yeah, it's still possible to grow up in a town where there's some race cars and go hang out at the shop or whatever, but it just doesn't seem to be as prevalent back then. It was all we had to do as kids. There wasn't all these other things. And so race car drivers at short tracks took such a prominent in, in for you to grow up, um, you know, literally in the days of NASCAR being formed is amazing. And I want to just get through the, a, a couple of these other notes here. You, you ended up, you're in the, uh, you're on the board of the North Carolina drag racing hall of fame, which is amazing. I love that. And, and you says here that you ventured into vintage round track racing in 2001 and you've won over 30 races in your 1940 flathead Ford. Where, where are you racing this car in 2001 or the early two thousands? And, 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 uh, and talk about what that's like to be, to be, uh, again, nostalgia racing at this point. Okay. Well, one thing I want to mention for that. Yes, sir. How many sports can you get involved in that ended up being a national sport? Think about what Bill France did. He he started an organization that ended up being a national sport. Yeah. And my dad was part of it. Now that's an honor. That's incredible. You think about that. Yeah. And and it you know, that's why I love it so much. But um when I you know, vintage, uh, once again, I know what it costs to race. And I went to a meeting one time. I met a guy up here at uh, the old high point speedway. And I called him because I was giving his telephone number. He was a, a groundskeeper for this company that's going to build homes there. Okay. The High Point Museum. Uh, they were wanting to do a program on the High Point area racetracks. So they come to me looking for information and wanted to go on site and make pictures. Well, I carried him to High Point Speedway and to the old Tri-City Speedway. And this guy up there, they would see High Point Speedway was right next to the Tri-City uh, Tri you the the land joined one another, and the guys that built the High Point Speedway tried to sell it to the Blairs, and Blair boys had seven of them voted not to do that four to three. Oh wow! They already had thousands of acres of land plus eight hundred acre farm, and their daddy had been in the land business, and their daddy was also uh, started the Elks Club here in High Point, and they started two churches, Lemon Methodist Church and Spring Hill Methodist Church. He's a well-to-do guy. He passed away in '36, you know, and so anyway. They voted not to. 
to, to do that. So I went up there with a high pump museum curator and uh, named Barbara Taylor and make pictures. And this guy showed up and showed me a picture of his race car. He said they had a club and he knew who I was, knew who my daddy was. And he said, won't you come to one of our meetings? We have a meeting uh, next Friday night up in down Virginia, Clarence's Steakhouse. Now Clarence is an old racer himself. Oh, yes. Steakhouse up there. Yep. So uh, he, we we gave him an award one time for his contribution to stock car racing. But uh, anyway, I said, well, let's go going up there and see what they're about. So we did, and they had an argument, and <laughs> we enjoyed it. <laughs> but they come over and apologized to me, and uh, there's a guy named David Prem from Montville, Virginia. He knew about my daddy, and he did us in liquor business too. And, uh, but anyway, he done heard about my daddy. And... Uh, he had a car. He said, won't you come look at us? I sell you a car and you come race with us. So I just thanked him and didn't think much about it. So uh, we came home. We was talking about it. And my wife said, uh, why don't you go up and look at that car? I said, you might. You talked about all these years, wanting a 39 Ford or 40 Ford or something to play with. I said, let's go up and look at that. So we did. And the car we looked at he had for sale, I didn't much like it. But he had nothing sitting up on the hill there. Now, David is a collector. I mean, he's got all kinds of stuff. Got a nice museum, mini museum of Fords. So I went up on the hill there and looked at nothing under the tree, and it was black. He won $10,000 for it. Wow. And it wasn't much, but it, yeah, it was a race car. But Ed didn't want $3,500 then. That's why I didn't want it. Okay. So uh, I come on home, you know, and so some fellas, a fellow and his wife coming from uh, Zeni, Ohio, down to visit with us this weekend. So. It was on Saturday, and they got in here, and I just got to think, and I said, heck, I better go up there and get that car. So I asked him, so you'll make a quick trip up here, up the road, and back, and get a car, and he said, yeah. But he didn't know I was going to Virginia. <laughs> <didn't> <laughs> quick trip up the road. So we went up there and got that car, and he said, hell, this is a trip. But I bought that car right there. And uh, I come back, and the third race I run was at Hick, let's say, Caraway Speedway. First one was at Hickory. I don't remember what the second was, but the third one I won it. And so that went, yeah, that car went. So okay. that went. I took the body off the frame. I rebuilt that thing, and uh, I mean, I went back through it and everything, you know. So I didn't do. Let's see. Yeah, I can't remember when I tore the motor. And that's been some years ago. But anyway, I finally got to the engine. I rebuilt the engine, and they had made me the president of that club. Didn't really want to be, but they said, you know, all the promoters, you can get a lot of races. So that's what I did. I have tried to help them, and so. Uh, this, it was at a meeting, and um, the two old racers sitting there, and they said, he's a drag racer. said, you ain't got to worry about him. He don't know nothing about round track racing. And so that's what they said, and it was repeated to me. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, now, well, hang on. To, ha hold on. I just want to make sure that, that everybody understands. They were talking about you. They were talking about me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So when you come in the club, they want to. Uh, there's one guy coming there and said that he used to race, and he had outrun people like Tiny Lung and different ones. Yeah. And uh, he was a good racer, and they had to better watch out for him. Well, that guy was lives up and down Virginia. He ended up spending $40,000 trying to outrun me, and never could. Wow. He, showed, he went to Junior Johnson. Junior said, no way you won't outrun Bill Blair to put a Chevrolet <laughs> motor in that car. So uh, he went and put a Chevrolet motor in. You can buy a kit that'll cover that motor up. It looks like Chevrolet, except the distributor's a giveaway, you know. So anyway, he put a Chevrolet motor in, and I still outrun him at the <laughs> South Boston. I got, I got that on film. I got, for those who don't believe that, it's on uh, go to uh, 
Bill Blair, uh, legendary Ford Flathead Racing, and it's on there where I outrun that Chevrolet. Wow. But motor, it Chevrolet powered uh, Ford coach, what it was. Well, anyway, uh, they're laughing about that, you know. So eventually, when I got the handling down pat, I worked on that car. My wife said, I thought she said, just going to do this now and then. She said, you work 24 hours a day on that car seven days a week. She didn't. She said, I should never open my mouth about you buying that car. <laughs> She'd give me the money to go buy it. And then she regrets it. But no, she don't really, but she's just kidding. But uh, anyway, I, I got word that uh, this guy over yonder at uh, King, North Carolina, Johnny Gregory, he, he could outrun me because he could outdrive me. But I got to run him down straight away. Okay. But when I got the chassis going, then it was a different deal. Um, see, round track racing ain't all about motors, mainly about chassis. Right. Getting around the corner. Yeah. And I knew that because I worked for Pascal and, and my daddy and the work for the Billy Hagen, uh, the built motors for Billy Hagen, who had Terry Labonte, you know, driving their car. Sure. And, of course, I built all these motors for Richard Childress, and I helped Richard. I worked for him doing the pits, you know, and worked in the pit stops. I either gas. Jack, change the right rear tire, whatever they needed. Wow. And so you, you you pitted together, like Cecil Gordon's crew and Chelsea's crew and David Cisco's crew. We'd all pit so we'd have enough people. See, the, those teams, uh, independents couldn't hire, uh, afford to hire. Right, a full-time. You know, seven full-time. guys, you know. So we just helped one another. But that's how I got into round track racing. Ended up, you said 30 a while ago. Actually, it's a lot more than that. I think there's... I could be wrong, but I believe there's about 70 first-place trophies down in that shop. I never really counted them, but somebody did. And I, wow. and I give some away. And actually, I run second several times. I didn't, they were complaining. I didn't want to break the club up. So I just started letting other people win. And, you know, I thought that's the best thing to do. But then again, sometimes I wonder. But if I just really want everyone in the club to fold it up. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, that makes sense. And the reason, I, you know, what happened? We lost five guys at one league from cancer, and one sold his car. I mean, this we're we're old men, you know. Yeah. When I started doing this, I think I was already seventy years old. Oh wow. No, late late sixties maybe, but uh, most of us ex racers or some way or another. But uh, it got real. What was supposed to be fun turned out to be very serious, and what's supposed to be a cheap way of having fun racing. Um, the guys, like I said, the one to go to Scott and Danville, he he told people he spent forty thousand dollars trying to outrun that number two car. <laughs> a good guy, a good guy, but uh, that car was hard to beat. Yeah. And and I mean, if you see what I done to that motor, you'd understand why. And it's all in the rules. I was a legal car. They tore it down. Then they wanted the money back. And I told them to go stand by the mailbox. It'll arrive one day, maybe. But. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it, it was a legal car. It it weighed in every time correctly. But like knowledgeable people will tell them, and they did tell them, said, you don't understand, Bill Blair is very serious about what he does, and he works on that car every day trying to improve it. And that's a racer. Yeah. All yep. of them do that. Yep. Do it Never more so than I do. Yep. You bet. Never good enough. And all those guys. They sure were. Now, but it, it, it turned out very well for me. I enjoyed meeting the people and had a good time. Well, it it, uh, it sounds it, and now there are still two more aspects to you. the The first is, um, you actually started to build race engines, and you owned Bill Blair Automotive in High Point for a number of years. Built a lot of engines for Grand National teams and late model sportsmen, which is now the the uh, Xfinity series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, in the in in the seventies, uh, you said you had winning winning races, uh, at, at winning motors at, at many tracks, uh, Daytona, Charlotte, Martinsville, Southern Five Hundred. Who were some of the drivers that you that you built motors for? And and talk about that because that's when I'm I was born in sixty seven, so I come yeah. into NASCAR through early early television in the seventies on Why Will the Sports, and so that's kind of my my era. Talk about who you were building motors for and some of what was going on in the seventies for you. Cause I mean, you'd already had this incredibly fascinating career and now you're into the motor side of things. Well, my daddy actually people recognized him as being the guy that could make a car run flathead forward. Okay. If I remember correctly, over yonder North of Charlotte highway 21, they built a mile track. And I believe Bruton might've been a promoter, but he set a record over there for a closed course, one mile dirt track. With that modified. Wow. And I mean, oh, he could outrun the best of them. And Jim Lou Allen won with it. He let Jimmy drive it some, but it was a mad modified. Okay. And uh, let me tell you something new. I'll, you know, I'll tell you about motors why I went that route. I never thought I could out race car. I never dreamed of it because those boys, I, I, they were my heroes. You know, they're doing something that's hard to do. And the average guy couldn't drive one of them modified the way they did. Sideways all the way around that racetrack, some of those tracks they had back those yeah. days. So anyway, uh, that was recognized as probably being one of the fastest sports in the country. And uh, there's nobody except me. I probably remembers that. I'm one of them. Neil Soapy Castles remembered it. But he's dead now. Yeah. Jim Lou Allen, who told that story many times, he's dead now. Nobody left to prove what I can tell you. But uh, yeah, I guess if you can find newspaper articles about it. And Buck Baker had a, a car that he drove for Buddy Schumann that was fly. Buddy Schumann and my daddy were very good friends. Buddy Schumann, my daddy, and Red Vault worked together on exhaust system even back in the 40s. Now, we know how critical exhaust are, but those guys knew it back then. Yeah. And I can remember it to the day. And like on my car, when I got, I built my own exhaust system. I'm not, this would mean this, I'm not going to tell people what I did to that engine. <laughs> but uh, anyway, my daddy used to tie them to the tree. I'm telling you, they put bar rims. Uh, the back of that, on the back of that Ford, put stuff in the trunk to weigh it down, take a big chain tie that big oak over there to the rear axle and put it, uh, put it down and take the chain horse and raise it up and put, it, and put platforms under it and raise them up good. And Wes Hedgecock had a big hopper oil can. Now, hopper oil cans like to use the railroad to keep the hoppers oiled. And his brother, Bub, would get in behind the wheel. My dad get under the hood with a long screwdriver and a hammer they open that thing wide open, put her in gear, and let it gnaw. And move, my dad moved that distributor back and forth while that motor was running. It didn't need a fan because it ran on alcohol and, okay. and nitro. And so it wasn't no danger. That thing be just a singing. They moved that distributor just a little bit now, a little bit more, and a little bit more until Bubba gave me a sign. They were looking at an old antique RPM gauge. It was made by some company. I can't tell you which one it was. But uh, that's what they was going by. Okay. And it was like a dyno. And then they had adjustable jets he'd bought in California. And he'd screw them in, screw them out. They give you a, a, a piece of paper that said screw them in so many, just screw it all the way into the bottom out like you would an iron blade. Then screw it out so many turns that run on gas. And then screw it out more turns for alcohol. So you've got to burn twice as much alcohol as you do fuel. Okay. But anyway, there's a certain number of turns. And then what he would do, he, he had homemade, handmade exhaust. 
and they started out buying them. It's just a tube that, uh, like lake pipes, as I called them back then, that tube run into this one common tube. So he made his separate, and so did Red Ball, and so did Buddy Schumann. And the way they had jet them was by looking at the color of the exhaust pipes. They'd get red hot. If one was real red, that meant that it, 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 it running fuel, raw fuel, and burn all the way out, probably a foot out of the motor. Okay. And that's why it run too hot, too much fuel. So you'd lean it back a little bit until you had about a two-inch space off the block, be red hot. Yeah. If it didn't have no color, it was way too rich, too, you know. So he, you'd see the, today they got ETG gauges, but they used eyeballs back then to, to read the, the pipes, what they were doing. And that's how he did it. So you'd, he made about three runs doing all that kind of stuff, holding it wide open. Now, people as far away as two miles up here at Mechanicsville, they'd know what he's doing. They'd come. There'd be a crowd before he got done. <laughs> around that car they'd walk over here and drive over here to watch him and I was this little boy and I was watching and when he cut the motor off I'd run over and scrape ice off the intake and the pipes would be red hot but they'd dissipate the heat real quick and the redness would go away real quick Yeah. now I knew all that stuff from watching him and learn all that stuff and he was just he talked a lot of people he'd met Tommy Hennerships Tommy Hennerships is S-H-I-T-Z he worked with Bill that's a Ted Horn Ted Horn probably had one of the very first machine shops for race cars up in uh, Indiana. Okay. So, uh, and he finally met Ted Horn. Ted Horn come down here to the High Point Speedway, and uh, somebody else drove the car because they wouldn't pay him any appearance money. <laughs> and that's how he met Tommy Hennessy's. And see, he learned from them. He asked them stuff. Hey, where'd you get this on this car? How do you do this? And they'd give him telephone numbers of people to call. All the racers down here, some way, shape, form, benefited from the Indianapolis guys. They were they were leapfrog way ahead of us, years ahead of us, because of who they were exposed to. Right. And the money that they they had more money than we had down here, unless you're a liquor hauler. Sure. But see, uh, but you know, that started my career as a way of calling it a career. It's just something I did. I never thought about about it being a career. So um, I, you know. We painted the cars, we beat the fenders out, we put motors on, we built motors, we loaded that car, we packed the wheel bearings, we did this, we did that. They didn't have no specials. If you worked with anybody, like Pascal back in those days, or Baker, or Ed Samples, you did everything. I mean, you didn't need no six or eight people. You could do it with right. three people. Yeah. Generally, the driver, he got this as dirty as you do. I'll sit there and work two or three days and never go home. And if I sat down and never went to bed, if I sat down, Pastor would wake me back up in just a few minutes. <laughs> we did, and I've, I've come down from Milwaukee back to High Point to get the car ready again, and I'd break toothpick, toothpicks in two and prop my eyes open so I could see the drive. Wow. Now, think about that. I've done it. And <laughs> But anyway, getting back to the motor deal, um, my daddy was well known for building engines to make them run. And he was a thinker. He was a learner. If he wanted to know something, he'd call somebody to help him. And he knew a lot of people out on the coast. Right. He knew that guy by the name named Stu Hilbert. He knew him. He knew uh, uh, this guy. See, he knew who Hilbert was. And he knew uh, one of them cam grinders that was uh, had SU-1 cams. I think of his name in a little bit. But he'd met all these people. He knew John Engel, Engel Cams. But he knew so many people. He, knew, he finally met uh, from an ad in uh, Speed Age, met Andy Granatelli. 
grandcore brothers, and they talked to them. In fact, he bought three or four motors from them, and they called him first every week, wanting to have the motor done. And they gave him $50 a motor that they sold down south as a result of him introducing Grandcore down here to the south. And they found out he had Grandcore motors. Well, they'd call Grandcore up in Chicago, order a motor. They'd send my daddy $50. But see, that's the way he was, the interaction. Yeah. So, when they, and, and they put a lot of emphasis on motors back then because they didn't know too much about chassis. They didn't get into chassis tuning until late, uh, let's say, 49, 50, long enough when they began to realize that chassis meant a whole lot. Okay. So anyway, uh, I was picking up on all this while I was still a teenager. Now, Jim Pascal, for instance, I'll use him as an example. He knew that I knew a lot of stuff that he did, so he was very comfortable about me working on his motors, and I started building motors for him in my old Y-Block motors up in Milwaukee Warehouse, 1956. Was up there, and we'd been out in uh, Oklahoma. We won the race out there, and I built that motor, helping Jim. Jim and I built it together. And then uh, went to Council Bluff, Iowa. And finished second, but Jim did. Next stop was going to be Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, and Strop, Bill Strop was in charge of Mercury racing. He had rented a big warehouse, go by past Blue Ribbon or whatever it was up there, and that, that hops that they had making that beer give me a headache every morning when I went by right there. <laughs> We get on down the road to the <laughs> warehouse, and uh, they had all their mercers in there. And shop had uh, his set up shop right there. He had to, had roped off for uh, to do the motors and the different cars. And I got to meet uh, some of them guys that drove for him. Uh, uh, I met Jimmy Bryan and different ones, you know, that uh, run USAC. Yeah, they were there too. And uh, let's see, uh, this guy that did the camshaft is. It's so much I can't remember just right now, but um, he's one that had the little red uh, redhead woodpecker on his advertisements, the cam grinder. But uh, anyway, I met all those guys. Well, Jim Pascal and myself, we took the motor part. Frank was working on the car, Frank Hayworth. He was uh, kin to Jim. Uh, Jim, I think, married Frank's sister. But uh, I was under the car hooking up the rod caps and torquing them. Somebody walked up, and uh, this guy that walked up asked Pascal, says, that little boy know what he's doing, Jim? And it was Bill Strop. I recognized the voice. And Strop said, oh, yeah, you ain't got to worry about him. <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> so Bill Strop became my buddy. You know, he'd tell me a lot, and we'd talk a lot. And I remember going out to eat with them every night, and Tim Plock drove. Uh, he'd quit KK if he got mad and drove it. Mark up and won the race. We finished fifth. We dropped the bow, but it still finished the race. And uh, I remember Tim very well. He dyed his hair black or his natural black. He stayed black all his life. I guess it was natural. But uh, he never said too much, but he won that race. And, and uh, Billy Myers, I think Billy Myers might have been second. Other Mercury and Bobby Myers showed up. And uh, they didn't tell Bobby it had a ratchet rear end on it. And he went down. It started raining. He went down the corner, got back in the throttle, and spun out with him, backed off the road course, and messed the car up. <laughs> But, you know, in the meantime, getting back to the motor building, well, I just got involved with it and kept doing and kept doing and kept asking people. I even talked Smokey in him. Another guy I talked to was, uh, you would not heard this name a long time, was Joe Wolf. Okay. Daddy, Pennsylvania. And Joe was well-respected, and he made them run, too. But my daddy was always around these people that knew stuff, and, and uh, he didn't hang out, you know, for the hell that he had work to do. But if you saw him talking to somebody, he's talking about motors, and I wanted to be there, too. I was like a shadow. And I watched him pour and relieve those motors, and I wanted to do it. I wanted to help him build the motors. 
and he would take a, a crankshaft and move it back and forth, standing in the block, you know, but not fast. He'd just turn it. If he felt any drag, he'd, he'd stop right there and loosen up the cap to be sure which one it was. When he loosened the bolts on the cap and it turned free, that meant that was the cap that the problem was in. Now, things with tolerances back in those days is not what it is today. The machinery was very crude. So you had to finesse the bearings. Okay. Now, I'll tell you how he done it. He'd break a piece of glass like a window pane. And if he found one with a cover to it, that, that was what he used. And if, you, if the bearing had a bright spot in it, now they, they use oil in them now. Put oil, in, put oil on them and then and, and torque it down and turn the crankshaft by hand. And he could feel it when it snugged up, and generally they had places in them. So he'd take that cap off and take that piece of glass and scrape it. It was like peeling an onion. And he'd scrape a little bit, and then he'd take his finger and a cloth and put it in something like kerosene and, and smooth it out, polish it out with a rag. Wow. Put it back in there and do it again. It might take all day. It may not take but an hour, depending on the situation. I have seen him also cut shims and put under the, the, the bearing cap to give it more clearance. And uh, and also seen him take uh, rod bearings, those old full float bearings, and put them on a block of wood with a mallet and hit them a time or two, and that opened them up and give more clearance. Those guys were finessed to do that nowadays. See, they didn't have mics, but they never had a micrometer yeah. or snap gauges. Yeah. Later on, and when I started working for Pasqua, we had them. But that's that's how crude it was. So you done everything by hand. You could take you could take a small Sierra Roebuck toolbox and, and run a whole season off of it. You know that's all you had. Sure. And you need an hammer, but Daddy always had a big hammer and a big hammer to beat on stuff. And you settling torches. What you used didn't have wire welders back then. If you needed something welded, you called the guy that had something on the back of his truck and he'd bring it to you. <laughs> he'd, he'd weld it for you. Yeah. But anyway, engines I loved them, and so I got to where I studied on just as much as I could, and so I started, um, I just got a reputation that, you know, uh, wasn't too bad at it, and so when uh, Jim Pascal and Warren Prout got the American Motors deal in 1970 and went to work for them, Jim knew I could do it, but I never met Warren Prout. Now, Warren Prout was a graduate engineer from Michigan State. Okay. And he knew a lot. He worked for Ford, Mercury, and Bud Moore uh, down in Spartanburg, South Carolina, I think, uh, uh, gosh, uh, so any guys really in Colorado. Parnelli Jones was one of them, particularly I can remember, and they won a lot of races. So, so I worked for him in Pasco, and we set up an engine shop. When the Ford Pieces got there from American Motors, I helped them build cars. And a guy named uh, Leonard Lawson from out in Kansas, he uh, is either Lawson Leonard or Leonard Lawson, I don't recall which it was, but he was a very good uh, fabricator. Okay. Spent about two or three weeks with him building pieces for the new Javelin. It was a Javelin's cars for American Motors, what it was, red, white, blue cars. Okay. So he taught me the angles and this and that and the other that when they do and you gotta have some sense of perception to know what to do when he's telling you something, you understand what he's telling you. If you just some dummy that he picked up at the bridge, no, you can't do much <laughs> for him. <laughs> that, that would be me when it comes to anything mechanical, just so you know. But but I right. I, I understand it. I just can't do it. it. It's fascinating for me to sit here and listen to all this because yeah. just you, how you had to do things back then, right? Yeah, when when they tell you something you got to see a picture. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Yeah. But anyway, uh when the motor pieces come in I went back to working on the motors and uh and they were very good to accommodate me what I told them I needed. Of course, they already knew 
and we raised it up. I think one ten races that row. We finished second in the points to Tony Lung and Ronnie Hopkins. If we'd had our engine pieces at the beginning of that year, we'd have won that championship. But wow. with a lot of that stuff we didn't get it to mid season. I mean, see, they only had American Motors only had one engineer. His name was Dave Potts. Okay. He's the guy you had to talk to. The other guy that you talked to, he's now working for Penske. I think uh, I can't recall his name, but anyway, um, I had talked to him about a drag car and we was going to do it. We just didn't have the time and resources to do it. Maybe we were going to run the AMX. I was going to drive it, but it just never worked out. Pops mm. was going to be a deal for me, but uh, it didn't work out because of time and resources. And so they, they borrowed money from Chrysler. Chrysler told them, said, you're going to have to stop your racing. It will on your money. Well, see, Penske got a three-year deal. Pascal Prout didn't get but a one-year deal. <laughs> and so that's what happened there. But that's where I got my start, really, of uh, doing engine work on a professional way of doing it. Before then, was just fix my buddy's car or fix the J2O's motor and put it down in a liquor car and yeah. run it. I could make them run. And, but then uh, when they they went out of business, I opened up my own engine shop. And uh, I built motors for... You know, Pascal and, and his efforts from then on, and uh, also for uh, Richard Childers. I knew I met Richard from Grand American Racing, and Richard was a good guy. Then his wife, Judy Kay, two of the finest people you'll ever meet on earth. Earth, I tell you, they're the best. And I just love those people to death. But uh, I saw Richard yesterday, as a matter of fact, and he always throws his hands up to stop and come by and talk to you. And, <laughs> This ain't changed. I mean, he's the greatest person, one of the greatest people I've met. And he introduced yeah. me also, Richard did, to Billy Hagen. Okay. And, and, uh, and Richard knew what I could do because I built most for him. And, and he still ran pink rods and stuff. He didn't have the money to really hardly race on, but he he saved every penny he could and he put his put the money right back in his race team. That's how he succeeded with hard work. And Richard's got a lot of practical common sense. And Judy Kay's right there backs him all the way. Gotcha. It's much like does me. Yeah. Never meet finer people. I can't say enough about them too. And uh, always working, always using his mind of imagination, practical imagination and common sense. So uh, that sort of got me started with uh, Billy Hagen and uh, Skip Manning stayed around about a year. Yeah. He's one of these guys, like uh, AJ said one time, AJ thought he can't drive a nail in a snowbank. So. <laughs> <laughs> he had, you, you know what though? I mean, he 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 started out because he ran he ran the super modifieds as he was coming up and 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 started out doing that. And got to Grand National. I remember Skip having some top ten runs in that. I think it was Stratigraph. Was that the sponsor on yeah. the car number ninety two for Billy? Yeah, he did. And we had, he had the Talladega race one one time. And I was down there, and of course I built a motor. I'm gonna brag. I mean, I did build a motor for him. And Junior Johnson said that must be a damn good motor. So he ran practice all week, qualified it. See, they would change it. They put the race motor in on what Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning. Junior Saturday afternoon go out and make one run with it and park it. Wait for race day. Well, Skip didn't have a. See, Billy couldn't spend by about a quarter of a million dollars. That was his budget. Yeah. And there were no more than that. So, you know, they'd run good stuff, but still they didn't run a, um, they didn't run, you know, the Moldex cranks like he needed and so forth. But eventually he did. So, anyway, Junior said, that must be a damn good motor. And so he run it all week, practice, qualifying, then the race. Here's what happened. Um, all Sellson car, they had to, get Donnie out and they put 
I believe Walter Penn, who skipped around right there with him and led some of that race out to Lice, and uh, he was in the front. And uh, he come into Pius. Darrell Bryant was the crew chief, and uh, what the hell are you doing in the pits? said, well, you call me in. Said, no, I ain't call you in, so get the hell out of here. <laughs> so he went back out, you know, and the car smoked a little bit. Out the exhaust, but it never quit. And he ended up, I think, think, finishing third, and Skip had a bit of article, almost, almost won. Mm. He on his wall. But it is his mistake. He should have never, never come into pits. Yeah. And uh, but what happened? I always thought well, Hoss probably had somebody to do that to get on his channel and tell him to come into pits so he win a race. But I don't know. I just just laughed about that. But that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Skip but, was from Bogalusa, uh, Louisiana. Bogalusa, Louisiana. Yeah. He's a car, yeah. car salesman. Yeah. Really. He's a great guy. Him and Dwight, really. But uh, I just tell you the the deal. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that's funny. But they had a falling out, and. Uh, I think uh, he couldn't keep a crew chief. I think Tex Powell tried it a while, and he couldn't get on Skip. Darrell couldn't get on with him. Oh. He's both great guys, you know, hard workers. Darrell and, and uh, Tex both were good people and worked their butt off, but just couldn't get on Skip. Skip wanted to call all the shots. Uh, if you hire somebody, let him do a job, let him do it. Yeah. Don't tell him how to do it. Yeah. All you need is go down to the bridge once again and get somebody else. Right. <laughs> tell them what to do, they do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a yard worker. Local yokel, yard worker, I guess yeah. you might say. But that's what happened. So they put Terry in there, and I think Terry went to Dalton. Then one day, finished fifth, first time down there, fourth or fifth. Terry drove a lot like Benny Parsons did. He's steady and all, but yeah. um, and he won his first race there at Dalton in 1980, and that's Bill Motors for him. And Bill Motors for, by the way, Bobby Allison drove uh, one of those javelins, uh, bicycle and him both. He sat on a pole down there at the road course at uh, Paul Revere 250 and Pascal set on the outside pole. Okay. And one of the point contacts broke in the stripter and put Bobby out of the race. I think it run the one, uh, see that, won the pole, run the lead for six laps, and Pascal run right there beside him. He ended up winning the race. Okay. But um, that, and then built motors for Cliff Stewart, and Cliff had uh, Morgan Shepard. He did. Point. Yeah, and then Jeff Bodine, right? Yeah. And I built the motors when Morgan was driving the sportsman car. He finished second to Jack Engel in, in the, in the sports, uh, National Sportsman Championship. Okay. And uh, built some, uh, helped uh, Ronnie Hawkins, Tiny Lung on that Pontiac motor that they had. They had a lot of problems with it. Brought it up here and pulled the motor out and tore it down. I said, what done done to it, fixed it. But uh, also built motors, uh, Cecil Gordon. Okay. Cisco. Uh, I hadn't thought about it lately, but there's a lot of motors, a lot of sports motors, a lot of drag race motors, and uh, had a great time. And then what happened? What happened to the engine builders, local engine builders, or independents? Bud Moore, General Johnson, the Petties, and K and K, I believe you might add that list. They all had in-house shops. Okay. And others that had any money, any budgets, uh, come along here in the seventies, you know that uh, Winston come brought a lot more money into it. Sure. And so they began to get recognition, and, and these teams get more money. But what they wanted to do, same thing Billy Hagen wanted to do. He wanted me to go to work for him. And I had this little dog that I wouldn't part with. So if you go to work for somebody else, you you know you're gonna give up that dog. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Well, I guess I'd had enough. I told him, no, I'd just be better. I just don't do this. And I had 
a couple offers over in Charlotte. Morsel wasn't established at that time to go to work for Tamar Bell Motors. Junior Johnson had told somebody about me out in California. They called me and offered me a job. I tried to run an engine shop for them. Yeah. I couldn't do that. I wasn't leaving that dog for nobody. So I just, so what I did, I said, I've had enough. I'm going to do something different. So I uh, sold my equipment to uh, Jim Test over in Kings Mountain. Him and the coal miners are going to go to business together. Okay. And so uh, they wanted me to go run, run that shop. I said, I don't know about that. And I never did give him an answer, but what happened, they folded before they got started. Oh, wow. So I'm glad I didn't. So I just stayed here and bought some trucks, started leasing trucks. Okay. And that's what I did. And then, so that afforded me to be able to go drag racing. There you go. So I started drag racing and, and leasing trucks. And uh, I say it like this. I've never had a job in my life. Everything I've done, I've been dealt with. And for since I guess you might say nineteen seventy one, I ain't never worked for nobody. Just done what I've done, you know. Man. I like to build motors, and I got to build a flathead Ford motors. I've done a lot of that, and uh, I just did what I did, and I built some motors. These guys out in Tennessee, Johnny Day, John John Day had uh, they had an insulation company, thirty one insulation, W thirty one insulation company. I built a lot of motors for him. That's what I say. He was the most, I think. There was a good racer, I don't want to call his name, that drove for him, won a lot of races. But uh, they had sportsman cars. Okay. But uh, I don't know. I just did a lot of it. That's great. What a what a career, what a life. Um and and I I have a note here, um that uh you have had or or You've organized, I believe, if I have this correct, one of the biggest reunions for, you know, old timers. Um, and it's right here in North Carolina. Am I right? That's correct. Talk uh, about that. Mountary Moonshiners. Mount yeah, there you go. Well, I'll tell you how that got started. Here's the story. Uh, some group of guys down in Hillsborough, North Carolina, started the historical group there to... Uh, re-energized the old Hillsborough racetrack called Okanichi to start with, then they call it uh, called it Hillsborough. It's okay. very hard for a lot of people to pronounce Okanichi. <laughs> Wasn't that, uh, it, one of the, yeah. that was one of the lost speedways that Dale Earnhardt profiled, Jr., yeah, right? Correct. Oh, the, yeah, yes. Okanichi. Okay. Yeah. yeah, my wife calls it Okanichi, but it's Okanichi. Okay. The way that track came into being down there, Bill France delivered one day and saw a track down there, and it was a half-mile horse track for it was, so it was for sale, and so... He went back down, I believe, in Staley, and they bought it and extended it and made it a mile track. But these guys down there in the Hillsborough area, they got together around Eklund and, and Hillsborough, started a historical group to get a group, have a reunion down there, racers. So that's what they did. I went to the very first one until they closed it okay. five years ago, five, six years ago. And uh, they, uh, they just got tired of working, I guess, and there's one guy there that was leading charge we've had enough or whatever they want to decide to do i don't know but uh it's right involved and i, I went to all the meetings trying to help we did do what we could do for them and of course when i say that i meant we went down to support them and you know advertise for them do everything we could to support them yeah but they they made that call we didn't make it none, nobody else made it but they made it so sitting in the parking lot after the very last meeting uh, a lady named uh, uh Karen Bisco, she's a school teacher, and her 
personal responsibility, best go ahead and work for the Petties. And yeah, I think his last job he had was uh, General Johnson. Okay. He's a fabricator. He'd do anything. Good guy, good family. So uh, I asked Colonel C. Park next to us, and one of our windows was next to that. We rolled them down. It was right chilly. It was talking. said, well, I asked her, I said, what do you think about Mount Harry? She and I love Mount Harry. We used to go up there about once every two or three weeks. You know, she liked to shop around. Apparently, I like the whole antique stores. Everything Mount Harry looks just like it did in 1910 to me. It's beautiful. Yeah. So at Blue Ridge Mountains, you look up there and you see them in the, in the look north, see the Blue Ridge Mountains. So it's a beautiful setting. So anyway, I asked Karen, I said, I knew she was a Perkins and was from Mount Airy. And uh, she said, well, I think it'd be a good place to, to move this. And I said, well, you know a lot of people up there to see what you can do. And I said, we'll, we'll get together. So it was about a week or two. She called me back and we communicated. I guess, I don't know if I called her or she called me. She said, but uh, Billy didn't think it would go over up there. And I said, well, okay. So... Um, I had reached out also to H.W. Golden and Jerry Hatcher. They both lived there. Now, the Golden, his uncle and, and, and father, I guess it was, they promoted that uh, uh, Mount Airy back in 46 and 49 when they closed that track of Mount Airy. Okay. That's why I contacted him, and I met them down in High Point Museum. Now, she and I raised money to put historical markers at Tri-City Speedway and the High Point Speedway, and they came down to support us. And Jerry Hatcher was with him. And we got the markers up, beautiful markers, you know, at the old sites. So I, uh, Jerry said he'd help. So they knew everybody. Of course, Jerry Hatcher worked for NASCAR. He's a flagman. His daddy was, uh, worked for NASCAR also. He was, uh, he was a driver, damn gone good driver back in the early days. He raced with my daddy. Okay. Earl Hatcher. Earl Hatcher. And drove a 39 Ford Modified. Great guy. They're great people. Well, nothing ever happened. And they was going to contact the powers to be in Mount Airy to see what we could do. And I'd call them. I guess I worried them to death. H.W. got away with answer the phone. I'd call him. <laughs> so I met this guy that uh, he's a promotional guy. And, and uh, he said that uh, I asked him, uh, said, How about, I told him what I was trying to do. I said, I'll give him a call and see if you get anything going for me. Well, I never heard no more from him. I saw him several times. Never heard nothing. He never mentioned it. So one day, after I mean, over a year trying to get something going up there, she and I happened to stop into a, uh, I didn't know who to really contact, see? Right. So I had a telephone number. I never could get no answer. I didn't know that this person that I had a telephone number didn't go to work until after lunch, you know? So that's oh, why I was okay. calling in the morning. Okay. So anyway, gotcha. it didn't have no answering service. So uh, anyway, uh, we was up there to get a, a mannery hat. Called, I love Mayberry, something like that. Yeah. And they had T-shirts that she was looking at. And some, they had some uh, clothing that also the kind that she likes. And uh, creates or creates or something like that. I can't call my name. She knows all about this clothing stuff for women. I don't. Okay. But uh, anyway, this lady was there helping us. And I said, do you know about the old racetrack? And, oh, yeah, I know where the old track's at. And she said, in fact, my... She had some camp people there that used to race and won some championships up here at Wistful in the round. She told me all about this guy named Artie Brim. He's an ex-Moonshine. He's Mount Airy's Junior Johnson, Artie is. I met him. But anyway, oh. I said, what about this lady that owns that racetrack, her and her brother? Well, you talking about Gail Hyde? I said, yeah. She said, she's got a store right around the corner from me. I said, I need to talk to her. She said, well, over I should talk to this nice lady. 
So we finished there. We, she and I walked across straight over to the corner of uh, Franklin and Maine, and there's this toy store at Blondegate, Ohio. And she was in there, and she walked in, and I said, recognize you, you got plate windows, you know. This gray-headed lady described to me, and so I walked in there. She was busy, so I waited, waited a little bit. She came over to me and said, you want to see me? I said, yeah, are you Gail High? She said, yeah. She said, I'm, I told her, I said, I'm Bill Blair. She said, well, I've heard about you. She said, some guys here the other day had mentioned your name and what they want to do right there at the old racetrack. Now, what H.W. was proposing was to do an event at her racetrack, which was open field with silage and corn, you know. Gotcha, she had leased it, so she couldn't do that. And uh, H.W. had a couple of 5,000-square-foot buildings across the street over there. When I say across the street, about a quarter mile from it. That was a museum and a, a, a storage house for cars, and he was going to have a dinner there yeah. and go to the racetrack later on in the afternoon. Well, that ain't what Mountary wanted to do, so they, they declined to do that. Well, she also told me, said, this one guy called me and told me who he was, and he bragged on himself about 10, 15 minutes how much money he could make us up here at uh, Mount Erie. said, I sized him as being a shyster, and I told him we wasn't interested. Because that's the guy that uh, I'm not going to tell his name over there. But uh, anyway, that didn't happen either. So she told me about that. And so I told her what we had proposed originally was to do a show downtown. I knew that they parked cars on the street from their cruise ends. I said, you could do the same thing, park the race cars up here on the street and get a tent like they did at Hillsborough and let the drivers come up and groom in and sign autographs and make it a moonshine racer reunion. And the, the moonshiners started racing, basically, and they have a moonshiner show down in uh, Dawsonville, Georgia that's well attended. You put two of them together, you'll have a great show up here. She said, well, I'll tell you what, that sounds good to me. She said, I need to talk to the event director, Phil Marsh. And said, we'll get right back to you. And so uh, a few days went by and thought, well, it's her. And she said, we'd like to meet with you. So we went up, Sue and I did, we talked to him. We had a couple of meetings. And then the guy that uh, that's going to make my telephone connection for me, I invited him to come. He's going to do an auction for us. Okay. And help us raise a little money to pay for the tent and the food. And I'll see him tents about $2,500, $600. And then it costs more than that to get them put up and big ones, you know. Right. So he didn't last long, in other words. He just never lasted long with us. But uh, we we started that event, and uh, had first two years, and it, it, see, I believe the uh, I believe the COVID come and shut us down one year. But it's been very successful. We also have a, a dinner on Friday night at the Cross Creek Country Club this year to be the eighth September. And, okay. That's uh, a, a beautiful country club. I mean, absolutely beautiful, beautiful. Great food, great food, and uh, based on Friday night and then Saturday, the racers will, your reunion will have uh, drivers. Um, I hope Bobby Allison come back, and, and hope that uh, Harry Gant come this year. to indicate he would. I need to call him to remind him. He said, but uh, Wally Wilson generally comes. Lula Rose. So just a lot of the greats, you know. Wow. And, and uh, a lot of the people like uh, Tim Brewer hopefully be there this year. We recognize him. Okay. And uh, Mike Hill, you remember him? Yep, met Mike but, uh, uh, a couple of years ago. Yep, and uh, just on and on and on. We had uh, ninety five to uh, had ninety five that we know of signed autographs last couple of years. We had the uh, first year we had eighty five cars at four o'clock. Some of them had to leave, but at four o'clock we had eighty five cars. Eighty five race cars? Yeah, on the street. Yeah. Wow. And up down the street, and they 
they, they close off part of the streets at that point this. Sure. Then we had the moonshiners to come. We've had some of the, uh, the uh, what do you call that, series that had the moonshiners on uh, Discovery Channel. Uh, Donnie Benton, he's uh, from uh, Bentonville, Kentucky. Okay. And uh, he comes, he's well known. Biggin will be there this year. He's a, let's see, uh, he's got it. He's a stand up comic, you know. He's a musician and the whole okay. deal. So he'll be there. Um, Big Chuck and Paul, Paul Murphy will be there. They both Discovery Channel guys, you know. Uh, Buck Nance. Um, Jimmy Fallon, a lot of moonshiners are well known, well recognized. They got their area, they do their deal, they set up a steal, they sign autographs and, and talk to people and, and, and love, you know, have the moonshine cars there. Yeah. Jimmy brings a working steel that's, that's on wheels, you know, that he shows to people and talks to them. He's from Copper Barrel Distillery. This year we'll have the Sun Distillery represent that and they're over in States, North Carolina. They produced, uh, Rick Paul Paul Murphy's, uh, uh, white liquor, and then they do Blair's Last Run White Liquor, too. It's introduced. It'll be formally introduced uh, June the 10th over there. Anybody listening, be sure to come over there from 3 to 7 to Sun Distillery. It's first exit north of Interstate 40 off of 77 Interstate. Be on your right there. Like I said, first stop right and turn left, right there on your left. But uh, a lot of going on up at uh, Manary, and, and one thing they did is really great. Now you think about this. Yeah. You and I talked about that at the beginning of this show, North Wilsboro. Yes, sir. What, what it meant to stock car racing and why it's going to be so successful. People like to reach back, look at the throwback at dawn. That'll give you a clue right there. They started that throwback, what happened to the crowd. They showed up, didn't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know what yeah. I mean? Same thing will happen to Wilsboro. And uh, this deal with the boundary wall of fame. It's great. We recognize a lot of people. NASCAR never gets second thought because NASCAR don't mean to be um, shameful in any way. What it is, the people that are laying this deal out, uh, they don't know who Bonnie Flock was. Yeah. They never saw the race. Right. They don't know these people, and and so we do. So we recognize them, and there'll be people on there like Cecil Gordon that NASCAR never recognized, never. Uh, now there's a few of them that is in NASCAR Hall of Fame. Like you look at Richard Childers, we know him as today as a successful team owner, but I knew him as when he was struggling, and his deal will never ever happen again. You get in race today, you're gonna to have money. Yeah. You 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 you're gonna have money from somewhere. And, oh yeah. Uh, but anyway, Richard did the impossible, so I recognized him as and the group there. We got four or five people helping us pick these people, uh, and and approve them. He achieved something so spectacular, in my opinion, that he deserves to be on that wall of fame in Mount Airy. It would encourage people to never give up, never give up. Sure. And this, yeah, we got, of course, Waddell Wilson. He is so such a nice guy, Waddell Wilson, and he loves early day racing. He loves it to death. Well, we got Lou awesome. Rosa. That's just two engine builders I mentioned. We got Junior Johnson, as well as uh, Rick Paul Paul Murphy, Kenneth Nichols. And, and others in the Moonshine Hall of Fame up there. And we also have some ATUF officers up there, uh, revenueers. Okay. So basically, it's all about this. It's dedicated to the early day stock car racing. For sure. We got Cigar Haddock up there. People in this area know who Cigar Haddock was. We got people from New York on that Wall of Fame. We got them from Texas on that Wall of Fame. We got them from out west on that Wall of Fame. Wow. 
I know people all over this country. Now, what happens? They'll find out about that wall of fame, and they'll contact right here, me or Sheila. Yeah. And they'll give us a, a story about their kin or somebody they know, and they'll send us information. That we'll put them on the wall of fame. You go up to Pennsburg, uh, West Virginia, you go out that area where all that dirt track racing used to be. You got Fred Horn, those people. You got uh, Steve Burnside. One hundreds, one hundreds of races. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and uh, it ain't all about the NASCAR drivers. I'm talking about these sprint car guys, these dirt racers. Uh, Ricky Weeks, um, Billy Scott. Hundreds of races they've won these dirt cars. Impossible to do today. Yeah. I mean, they were the Carl Lawsons of their time. You know what I mean? Absolutely. We got them on that wall of fame. And uh, this wall of fame is, is at the old post office built in 1900. They got planters on that building. There's a walkway there. Adjacent to it, on this side of this page, is another old building. See, all this stuff's built about 1900s around here. Sure. That guy said that we could use his wall, too. And the owners of these buildings have put in a deed that the wall can never be messed with. They cannot tear it down, remove it, or anything. It will be there from now on. Wow. And all I asked for to start with was a corner up there that I saw that was vacant that they could do it at. And that guy that owns that post office said, well, Bill, let me show you something that you might want to consider before we do that. And this guy's name is uh, it's the guy there. It's the event director, Phil Marsh. And he owns an electrical company there. He carried me down to his building there that reason what I'm telling you about. I said, what about this? And he looked at me and said, you really mean that? I said, who owns this? He said, I do. I said, I guess we can do it. You can't win if you sure can. So he got wow. busy, and, and we drew up a little sketch of what we thought would work, and so he, he implemented it. Uh, some people donated some money to help do it, and uh, we did it, and it's beautiful. Incredible. What a, and there's people up there from everywhere stopping by there to make pictures. They come on Saturdays. They come on Sundays. They come on every day of the week. They're there day and night. It's lit now. You know, they got lights there. Yeah. But it's got their names on this beautiful wall. There's several walls there with the planters, got lights, got flags. Uh, Main Street, you come down Main Street, you'll see a little dealer that's right at Snappy's Lunch. You know, remember that on Mayberry Snappy's? Yeah. That's where it's at right there. Uh, Snappy's is right about two doors south of it. Then okay. You this breezeway there, go to the back parking lot, but you go go through that walls there, the Wall of Fame. And it was stuffing there all the day long, making pictures of that beautiful wall. Oh, I need to get up there. you love it. And, and, and here's another thing about Mountain The town is 100% behind it. That's great. It. The police department, hey, you come over and see that wall of fame, you can double park if you want to. They don't care if you, if you tell them you want that wall of fame. But, uh, and the police department, the JCs, everybody, Cross Creek Country Club, it's just 100%. They love it. That's awesome. I mean, that's their game. See, Mountain is a tourist town really sure. Mayberry Mayberry made them you know what I mean oh it really absolutely did. yeah it's just a lovely place to even do the setting but uh, and you go around looking oh I love look I she'll go shopping sometimes I'm just looking and stuff she goes shopping there it comes home with nothing she don't like spending money I don't know. <laughs> that's, a, that's the kind of woman you want Amy <laughs> but, uh, that's a rare woman well she's a real lady and she's a, <laughs> hey she knows more about race cars than the average person you ain't never gonna believe what she that's knows about great. race cars but and she can drive the, the rigs. She can. She won't back them, but she can go forward. Okay. She can drive with the best of them day and night. She's the best driver I've ever been with. That and my daddy and Jim Possible, still the best. And Jimmy Lee Allen's a good driver. Put a lot of miles on the road with him. 
but as far as Mount is concerned, it's just such a lovely place. And then Friday night's just such a beautiful night up there at the Cross Creek Country Club. All the drivers are telling their tales and having so much fun. And the food is just absolutely great. That's awesome. Well, if you want to know more details about this, tell people to call me. Hopefully, but, uh, uh, we can get up there this year and be part of it, and and uh, would would just would just love it. That's um, it's been so much fun, Bill, to be able to sit back for uh, a couple of hours here and just reflect and remember and celebrate the early days. And I feel like there's so much more to know. Uh, would love to do a few more of these with you over time here, and. Uh, you know, and, and just uh, entertain people with some of the stories and the names and, and all of that because our sport just has so much of a rich history across the sport. But, the you know, the Southern stock car stories, um, just <laughs> just incredible. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to jump on the Stock Car Classics podcast with me and uh, and tell some of those stories. Well, I certainly enjoyed it really, and we, we appreciate it. Sorry about the late start with. I forgot all about the deal. We was eating. We just run late today, but I'm glad it turned out the way it did. I enjoyed talking to you, and hope I've been helpful. And, and uh, if you want to know anything else that I can help you with or anything, just, just feel free to call me. It's been a true pleasure speaking with and listening to Bill Blair Jr. And uh, you are listening to the Stock Car Classics podcast. Of course, uh, more content about Stock Car Classics on StockCarClassics.com. And uh, for more content, you can go to SteeringWheelNation.com as well. Everyone have uh, a great evening. My name is Tom Baker, and you've been listening to the Stock Car Classics podcast.